Welcome back to Human Reaction, your weekly source for independent commentary on news, culture, and politics, where it's always our mission to arm you with the tools you need to cut through media misdirection and resist the mono-narrative. Please like and subscribe to our channel wherever you are. We cover a variety of topics, so use those chapter marks below to find the subject that you are most interested in. To talk about the news today, we've got the usual suspects, Kyle Mack and David Rand. David, what are we talking about today? Well, we got the House of Representatives got themselves a brand new speaker. And the real question is, is does it have Bluetooth? Not for real. But e- what's the that's the real question. Yeah, yeah. That's e- the real question. Um, we got some uh, updates on Israel and Hamas, uh, but hopefully I don't make it super boring this time. I want to apologize for the last three videos. Hopefully <laughs> this one will be not so dreary. It's so hard. It's, it's, it's like too soon to not be dreary, but. Well, but it's also like the only thing that's happening. So. Yes. Right. Yeah. I've gotten positive feedback on them, though. I think that oh, I think we're doing it justice. Yeah. And uh, that's good. So yeah. just but. watching that view count go down. So make sure to like and subscribe and send it to people who say, watch this or you don't know what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, next up, we also have we're also covering crypto uh, it celebrates the oncoming destruction of San Bankman Freed. And, uh, and then last, we got the Argentine election. And is the happening happening? We'll have to explain what that means to folks and why the Argentina uh, presidential election is important to people that aren't uh, Austrian econo- economists or libertarians. Yeah, right. right. It is an important update, uh, important development if it goes the way we think it will. Otherwise, it's just going to be another socialist in Argentina, which sounds like the last 70-something years of Argentine history. So, yeah. For sure. So, kicking things off, uh, we finally have a new Speaker of the House. Mike Johnson... Sounds like a bad joke. Mike Johnson. <laughs> uh, he's, you know, I'm optimistic about this guy. He's got an interesting internet presence, right? Like, look at this guy. Look at him. That is a perfect tweet right there. And what he's doing oh. is actually he's, he's a Trump acquitted uh, headline and Nancy Pelosi. This is when Nancy Pelosi was trying to get rid of the president she didn't like because he was naughty. So we also have him on Tucker Carlson. He's got a, uh excellent sense for constitutional law uh and i thought this was a this was really interesting contribution to an old fight but um something worth noting about kind of getting a sense for who he is so you were obviously watching there at the state of the union um when you saw the speaker rip the president's speech into pieces did you take that as a sign of of politeness as an as an expression of kindness and friendship no, of course not. I mean, it was a shameful display. It was stunning, really, to many members uh, sitting in the House. It was totally unprecedented. It was shameless. And it was also unlawful, Tucker. Um, you know, a lot of people have been talking about this the last 48 hours. And I did a little legal memo to point out to my colleagues that she actually committed a felony when she tore that, that paper up. It wasn't just any copy of the State of the Union address. It was the copy, the original. And we have over two centuries of custom and tradition and, of course, the Constitution that calls for the State of the Union address, uh, that the, when the president delivers the copies to those top legal officers, the two top legislative officers in that right. co-equal branch of government, those are the official documents of the House. And if you tear those up, you violated a specific statute in the criminal code. Isn't that wild? I never would have uh, thought of that. Yeah. She's actually a felon. Well, I mean, she'd have to go through a legal process to determine that. No, but no, no, no. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> good enough for you. Court of public opinion. She <laughs> was like, like, don't take this away from me, Dave. Don't take it away. I mean, we do have a, some substantial material evidence. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, it's an interesting angle, and it kind of demonstrates a familiarity with what he's doing as a legislator, which is a good thing. You want your speaker to be a legislator who takes the law seriously. 
Um, he's, but, a, he's a wonky nerd. Right, like, he is. Very much. It's very evident that he's just kind of like this wonk type. And we've experienced this before with the Paul Ryan like, speakership, which was a disaster. So the question is, is, is he willing to take on the big fights more than just rhetorically? And at least we do know that he has taken some brave votes. He's voted against Ukraine spending when it was unpopular. He's voted uh, for um, different spending reforms. And he's been part of the good crew of marginal voters in the past, not part of like the the 10 with Gates, but in the conservative, what's called the Republican Study Committee and the caucus around that, that has been advocating for spending reform for some time and has been one of the leaders of the intellectual movement there. And we do have a really great video of uh, him talking about entitlement reforms and kind of his, per, uh, you know, kind of why that's so important. This is important because what you want out of your speaker is someone who's committed to losing face if they don't follow through on what they have said that they believe in. So if you need to, you know, have a speaker that if, if, if when the fight comes up, they say, well, in the past I've said this, and if I do something else, I'm going to let the people down who support me. So we've got this. Uh, it's an important point, isn't it? And again, once again, this is going to set those of you who and RSC potentially on a collision course with others in who call themselves conservatives, who, but who have a more populist bent and, and who are more comfortable with the government doing things that you think are inconsistent with conservative principles. This leads me to my next question. I think that number principle number two of your seven was limited government, right? Right. Was that two or three? I can't remember. Number two, it's right number after two. individual freedom. Individual freedom and limited government. And, and I think you and I would agree that individual freedom and limited government are, you know, opposite sides of the same coin. Right. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult as somebody dedicated to principles of, of limited government to see the ballooning out of the deficit and a complete abandonment of entitlement reform. Your thoughts? We'll start with Mike and we'll go to Mark. We have to get back to it as a number one priority. The CBO says that entitlement spending, which they define as Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, interest on the debt, right? Those four obligations, we eclipse GDP in what, a dozen years or something. I mean, this is not... This can can no longer be kicked down the road. You can't wait eight years to address this. It has to happen yesterday. So um, we, we have to have our hand at the wheel and do this. We are completely derelict in our duty. We're rearranging furniture on the Titanic if we don't get this problem under control. Which is a great point. You know, like in having someone who actually is trying to lead on making a point about how important that is. In this moment, when we have such a huge deficit problem with so much spending being automatic, so many golden calves that cannot and third rails that cannot be touched or questioned that we that's a good thing now is he going to be perfect i don't know the question is at the moment is did the matt gage strategy work right um this whole fight if you remember why this guy became speaker is because way back in january the old speaker mccarthy couldn't get a majority of republicans uh, because a hardcore set of conservatives said if you want us to vote for you and you need our votes in order to win you must set forth a vision on spending that we that is compliant to us. And that means getting back to regular order, single subject spending bills, and you know, going through the process as it's supposed to be. Not a giant continuing resolution or omnibus, which is a single bill that spends all the money and just does automatic increases and stuff like that, but rather funding each department, funding from each committee. So every committee has a chance to actually participate in the government process and allowing amendments and allowing the regular process that we used up until about the late 90s and early 2000s when we pretty much abandoned that. Mm -hmm. And so for 20 years, we've basically been in this terrible situation where we have given up on regular order. And these guys are saying, let's get back to that because 
Participatory democracy means you have to be able to participate. And the old speaker said he would do that, and then he failed to follow through on his promise. And so by October, uh, September, October, we had only passed one spending appropriations bill. And it was set and it was languishing in the Senate because no one believed that all of them would be passed, right? Because the speaker hadn't got the job done. So these 10 Republicans voted out the old speaker. And then we've been in a process for the last two weeks of selecting a new one. And they've gone through a whole bunch of other ones, Jim Jordan and uh, Steve Scalise and stuff like that. And they landed on Mike Johnson, who was able to pull together enough, enough of the caucus. So I'm curious about that. Before, you know, McCarthy needed these 10 holdouts. Now it seems like if Mike Johnson is sort of the guy that these that the was the Liberty Caucus has sort of put forward or is supporting, how is it that he has been able to draw together this coalition? What is it that he did sort of um, negotiate on or concede on to yeah. to get picked? I think it's I think he's not he's not necessarily part of the hardcore, right? He's on the fringe of between the mods and them. Like he's kind of in both groups. The Republican Study Committee is part of the the more ideological nerdy, you know, base of Republicans in the in the legislature. So. Um, and he's been a leader on that, but keep in mind, so was Paul Ryan. And Paul Ryan's the guy who once, uh, who was speaker when Trump came in with a majority in the House and Senate and failed to actually get Obamacare repealed or balance spending or any of that kind of stuff. So just because he's got the right ideas doesn't mean he's the right leader per se, but it's a much better set than, set than uh, McCarthy, who was selling us down the road, who was saying, hey, we're gonna, we, we didn't get the appropriations thing that I promised I would do done. So at minimum, you have... This the the new guy. He's got the sword of Damocles hanging over his head, right? Because at any time, these ten Republicans can axe him. Yeah, right. Now we'll be willing to do that. There's a lot of considerations, right? But uh, this is hopefully a point where Republicans can come together and say, okay, we got a new direction. We're going to start taking these things seriously, and we're going to get the work of the people done. It's it's worth noting too that this is usually just a good litmus test for me. Is pretty much all the people that I hate really dislike him, and a lot of the people that I like like him like thomas massey had a lot of really gl- good glowing words for him but then you had people like liz cheney bill crystal um people kind of in the neocon sphere that were completely lambasting him across twitter all day when this happened so he's at least ideologically i think people that are kind of in our purview he's probably not going to be perfect I, I think that's very clear he's not going to be perfect but for the most part he's much better than what we had um and like we could have done a lot worse I saw a graphic about him versus McCarthy and how they stack up on Ukraine issues. And it seems like he's much better on Ukraine in terms of being reluctant to send money and get involved there. Do we know much yet about his perspective on funding Israel and this new war that we now find ourselves stepping further into? I don't think there's a single Republican who doesn't want to spend money on Israel. Uh, Thomas Massey was the only one that came out. And I don't think it was the appropriations that he objected to. It was the trade sanctions. Yeah. Well, he he put out a whole list. He had like five different things in the resolution that he... So uh, that's just reality. This is not within the the Overton window right now Mm -hmm. to have that discussion. Um, It's an open question, right? Like to what degree does just spending money at a problem fix the problem? You know, are we trying to fix the problem? Or are we just trying to signal that we support Israel? Like those are those are real questions. Um, but we'll we'll get to those in a little bit. We have a great video from Reason to kind of cover and kind of t- tease out that question because I think the philosophical like what should America do about this is an important question that we got to get to, um, and isn't being debated at all. It's the current debate is, <laughs> are you on Israel's side or Hamas's side, which is dumb, and uh, do you like college students saying? 
you know, terrible things to Jewish students. Like those, that's the debate. And it's just absolutely ridiculous. But, you know, at the end of the day, so the MAGA, um, the MAGA folks are taking this as a win. And that's another important part of the narrative is like, how does, how does the media, the public, and of course, this like crew of, you know, conservative legislators see this fight. Matt Gates went on to Steve Bannon's war room and made his case for how this, this proves that since the beginning, this vision of, you know, we're going to hold the speaker accountable. We're going to, if he doesn't do what he's going to say, he's going to do, we're going to vote him out. Did this work? And is it actually driving things in the right direction? And this is what he had to say. Oh, what at the very end, when some people didn't know if they could still even bring back McCarthy, a few of them just left the room and didn't vote. And the swamp is on the run. That's- MAGA is ascendant. And if, if you don't think that moving from Kevin McCarthy to MAGA Mike Johnson shows the ascendance of this movement and where the power in the Republican Party truly lies, uh, then then you're not paying attention. But they are they are crying. They are hand wringing and bedwetting over on K Street. Because we have an honorable, righteous, righteous man uh, who is about to take this position. He's going to do great things for the country. It is worth saying the honorable, righteous man thing is this guy does have a uh, deep history. His like entire legal career seems to be based around religious freedom stuff. He's like deep Christian. So the Christian right's really going to probably like this guy. What is K Street for those folks who might not understand that reference? Where the lobbyists live. So the people with special interests to try to sell Congress are shaking in their boots because he's principled in a sense he's not going to take that money probably uh he raised a half million dollars he's taken some pack checks don't get me wrong like there's a lot of legislators who will receive money and that's because they see the lobbyist as buying into their vision sure and then there's some le- lo- legislators who see themselves as selling themselves to the lobbyist of like what do you need and i'm gonna do that the the amount of money someone raises isn't necessarily a signal about how they see that money, but there are both kinds of legislators. So who this guy is, we don't know. I don't know. I don't have enough information yet. Uh, but, you know, the, the, I think for a lot of issues, a lot of social issues that the conservatives and the Republicans are most concerned about, this guy's going to be, he's going to be very firm on. And how are the Democrats seeing him? Because hearing uh, MAGA Mike Johnson probably doesn't put a lot of uh, left-leaning folks in a very good, happy place about this, right? You know, I, it's funny. I'm pretty, I, I don't know this, but I suspect that name probably came out of a general election ad against him. Oh. And now the MAGA people are like, he's MAGA Mike Johnson, you know, so. It, Embracing we'll it. Yeah, you know, we'll see. I, 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 I know that Twitter has been just absolutely lit up in fear of like, this guy is the worst. Like, it's, it's like Donald Trump all over again. Because Kevin McCarthy was squishy, and they everyone knew it. So he was just like, he was the consensus candidate for reasons, and this guy's not going to be, he's not the guy who got elected for speaker because he is the, um, he's the biggest fundraiser. Good fundraiser, but he's not Kevin McCarthy. I've been around since John Boehner raising hundreds of millions of dollars kind of fundraiser. Gotcha, yeah. I found the whole process leading up to this very interesting too, like um, when Tom Emmer got pushed forward and how instantly like he got shut down trump came out completely lambasting him on truth social mm. and uh like it, it was just interesting to see how everybody like really dogpiled on emmer and then all of a sudden just this guy rose through the ashes really quickly it was because i've never really even heard of mike johnson before like i've never it's just like a name like i was really shocked to see this guy come up because if i haven't really paid attention or really know who the guy is you just like where did this guy come from? And he, he has actually only been in the house for like six years. Like he's pretty, he's pretty novice, um, which is 
another interesting aspect, which does have concerns about the leadership aspect for me, but we'll, we'll see how that works. But the important thing here is like he got this position because he has such a good reputation amongst Republicans. Like mm-hmm. that's all ultimately what it boils down to. He couldn't buy anybody off. He doesn't really have like he was he was a leader in this in the in the, in the study committee. But that doesn't necessarily translate to a lot of political power or cult, so clout. So therefore, I, I don't. I think I think the it, it does demonstrate that there's a general consensus that the guy is, you know, has a good reputation, which is not a bad start. Yeah. You know, if you can unite the caucus together, it's not a bad start. Yeah. Uh, and there was that he would he, what he is right about to about Gates is a certain set of the mods walked out of the vote altogether, and that's what allowed him to be elected. There's a bunch of people voted present. So. Interesting. Yeah. And is that, what is that demonstrating in terms of their sentiment towards him? The, ca- the caucus isn't fully united yet. Mm. Right, so they, he has to do stuff to try to pull in to get the mods if they're going to get stuff done. So. But some people might look at that and go, well, when Congress gets stuff done, it's really just spending more money. <laughs> right? So if they don't yeah. get anything done, it could be kind of a good thing. Well, right? don't get me wrong. Like, you, you, could, you can reform the National Defense Authorization Act by you know, saying the military gets the same amount of money last year plus this inflation. And what we're going to do is we're going to roll back some stuff that we didn't like that Obama did on surveillance, if you wanted. And there's stuff that they do have on the docket. For example, they want to do stuff when it comes to the military paying for transgender surgeries. Right? Which is, you know, I mean understandable if you don't believe transgender surgeries are a moral ethical thing to do and they're taking your tax dollars and they're using your tax dollars to you know transition people people are going in the military in order to get transition dollars for free right yeah there's a, there's at least a case there like we should have that debate uh yeah. if you're pro-life and you're in the military is paying for abortions that could be another thing like these are all like things that they can do and they are in a negotiating position with the white house and the senate to make happen without spending more money and, and there's, there's other kinds of reforms on exactly how you implement all these sorts of things. Uh, for example, there's a lot of rumor about implementing a, um, uh, an audit of the Ukraine funds in the next Ukraine spending bill. Now, Ukraine spending is probably going to happen because it's probably going to be combined with Israel, Israel spending and no one's going to vote against that. So therefore, putting in an auditor into there that's actually going to audit the funds would be a tremendous conservative win, right? Mm-hmm. It's a win on the margin. It's not perfect. This is the politics is the, is the art of the possible, not the art of the ideal trying to make those two things meet. What is the mainstream media narrative around Mike Johnson and, and this whole... He's a radical mega yeah. Republican who's going to destroy the country. <laughs> cool. It'll be fun to see if that comes true. <laughs> when I use this voice, that means I'm joking. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's the, that's the sarcastic media. Yeah, it's, it's all the articles. Like when I just pull up the articles, they're all kind of um, uh, far right. Republicans are embracing him is what the New York Times says. CNN is saying that he's uh, he's Trump ally. Like there's a lot of Trump association, obviously. Um, New York Times just interesting is that they're really embracing the far right Republicans are embracing him. So one of the obvious ways to really demonstrate that the media is controlled by leftists, right, is how they hyper focus on divisions within the Republican Party, but don't really talk about ever the, the divisions within the Democrat Party. It's, it's not really that interesting to them, but you know what these evil Republicans and who's allied with Trump is so interesting. We got to talk about it all the time. That is, that is like, it's a very obvious way to assess that what you're doing is putting a microscope on the thing that you want everyone talking about. And so you're sure. directing the field of vision towards the thing that that's why everyone thinks Republicans never have their act together. These same problems happen on the Democrat side. Well, well yeah, like think about the Democrats. We literally just had a, a candidate that is getting 20% of the vote drop out and run and run independent. Right. 
like there are clearly big divisions, like the whole squad group, like they're very out of step with the establishment Democrats, like their, their divisions might be bigger than ours or ours. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I don't know. Uh, you Republican. It's okay to be a Republican or a Democrat and have your own ideals. I voted this for Harambe, so okay? No, you didn't. Yes. <laughs> did you really? Oh, yeah, I did. <laughs> Last time I voted was in 2016, and it was for Harambe. Kyle's a Camus figure. He likes to he likes to make fun of the process. I like I like the theater of it all. Like I'm, I definitely align myself more with the Republicans on most issues usually, but I am very much like, I don't care about any of your guys' teams. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. I don't, I don't, I'm... Is what does it mean to be a party member, right? I mean, that's this. So to me, subjugating your identity to a party is the least American thing I can I can think of. Right? We have free speech, so you have your own ideas, right? Yeah. And then you ally with the people who allied with you, and you implement a strategy to implement your ideas mm-hmm. in the real world. It doesn't have to determine who you are, yeah. which is just silly. Yeah, like on the Republican side, I, I like like Thomas Massey and Rand Paul, and that's about it. <laughs> like, that's about all oh, I come got, on, really. man. There's all the good ones. No, <laughs> There's yeah. a few other ones. But like, look at like uh, Tulsi Gabbard, who, who has all kinds of great stuff that I like. I exactly. With her on some and stuff. I, I'm and very or, supportive of people like Tulsi, too, right. on the Democratic side. I like... I like people who are kind of like attacking my enemies from all sides. And I'm very happy with that. Like Tulsi and RFK kind of attack the people I don't like from the left and people like Thomas Massey and Trump to a lot of degrees attack the people from, from, from the right. And that's, that's nice. And no, he didn't even mention Vivek. Just saying. I noticed that. <laughs> I, I can't, I can't name everybody, Dave. I, I love my boy Vivek. I, I, mean, I, I I'm like leader of the fan club. Yeah. So what we do have is what's he going to do? That's the ultimate question. And what we do have is the spending appropriations bills are back on track. They passed the water power bill uh, yesterday and they did a ceremonial resolution on Israel. That's basically saying we support Israel in their fight and struggle against Hamas. What's on the docket is the question. And that's and, and both of those are, you know, non-trivial things. I mean, it took nine months to get one appropriations bill across the bill board with the last speaker. This speaker got a appropriations bill done in a few days. It's a good sign. Yeah. So as far as like getting back on track for those things, and that was a single set resolution thing, and it was like he's following the rules so far. So, you know, kudos to him. Yeah. The question is what's going to happen with foreign policy and the spending bills on foreign policy. So here's what we got. Biden has proposed another spending aid package that to go for Israel, Ukraine, China, and the border and humanitarian defense. And that's how that breaks down is 61 billion to Ukraine, 14 billion for Israel, 9 billion for humanitarian aid, 7 billion for China defense, which is probably Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, stuff like that. And 13 billion for our Southern border. Um, what, what is quote unquote humanitarian mean? It's like uh, getting water to Gaza be a good example so that's specifically for the israel I can't, you know it was it was kind of said like a flex fund and i didn't have enough time to really get a grip on all the all the implications it's the, it's the money laundering fund it's, right <laughs> it'll get sent back to the clinton foundation Dude, that's 61 somehow. billions for ukraine like if you're oh yeah that's that's obviously for the gangs in ukraine yeah <laughs> well yeah and i mean i'm noticing the scale here it's like for all the rhetoric around like we have to defend israel and ukraine being like this redheaded stepchild kicked to the back of the uh, of the you know frame now there's so much more money still going to Ukraine than there is to Israel. Yeah, well, Zelensky still got it. Keep in mind that we've spent $280 billion on Israel since its founding. Every year, they're the number one, $260 billion. But I feel like we've spent that much on Ukraine this year. Uh, 
Well, I'm mean, just saying like we had a slow buildup to build up their capacity over all these years. So they probably don't require as much. They're the fourth largest military in the world to start out. Okay, with, sure. Right? So they don't need as much of our money because yeah. they their can, per capita GDP. Because we've already been paying for them. <laughs> yeah. Their per capita GDP is one is a first world nation, right? So they just they don't need what Ukraine needs per se. And they're not fighting an air force or a navy. Right. The, right. the boats the, the the Air Force of Hamas is a paraglider and a rubber boat. <laughs> Is the Navy, right? It's yeah. not the same problem as Sevastopol and the Russian Navy. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, totally. So it makes sense. Yeah, but, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I support these things. I don't think we should be spending any money in Ukraine at all. That's probably the logic is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah but that's how they're thinking about it. Sure. And $13 billion for the border. So this is a bit of, there's been an about face in the Biden administration about the border. And I want to I just open this up a little bit because Trump's policy was build the wall, obviously. We all know that. <laughs> And then Biden was like, hell no, and tore it down, right? And then recently, hasn't he come out and said, actually, we do need a border wall? This was quite the debate. That, did we talk? Did we cover this? I I'm not remember. sure we did. Huh? Um, I think it was in the show notes. The show notes are always somewhat short of what we actually able to cover. That's why you need to jump into the Discord and you can get into there. That's all right. The nuance. But yeah, you're right. Uh, there was a lot of border wall constructed in the last year. Um, there was a big debate about whether or not that was money that had been allocated under Trump just now happening because of how terribly slow our bureaucracy and construction systems are. Um, and Biden was kind of blaming it on Trump that, oh, it's being built because he allocated and we can't actually stop it. But it's an interesting uh, set of problems. There is a tremendously bad humanitarian crisis going on at the border, though. No doubt about that. There's some real great video out there um, that demonstrates, like you can visually see just how bad it is. And we're talking thousands and thousands if not millions of people coming through our border because south america is an absolute shit show right now for all kinds of reasons but Hmm. the drug cartels being one of them it is crazy because when elon musk isn't like building rockets and like building internet and stuff he was he literally just went down the border and just live streamed like a journalist (laughs) in like a ridiculous cowboy hat and aviators too (laughs) such a memeable moment but it's one of those things where that then gets put in front of hundreds of millions of people because he's the biggest twitter account and it's just it's it's wild that you have like this guy that is just like i'm gonna be a podcaster now (laughs) (laughs) he's a twitch streamer citizen journalist yeah he's he's streaming video games he's he's interviewing presidential candidates he's going down to the border and doing journalism it's just like he's all like i I don't understand it i mean when you're the richest guy in the world or close you can just do whatever you want right yeah I don't know. He's, he's shutting down Ukrainian operations with the internet, you know, to stop World War III. Like, he's doing everything. He's Batman. He is Batman. He's Batman. Batman. Yeah. Well, and I don't know. We, we don't need to get too far down this, but there's been a lot in the news lately about, like, the risk of the border specifically being so porous and with all of the division going on around the Israel-Hamas conflict that terrorists could be, you could have been flooding across the southern border of the United States for the past however many years it's been wide open and be kind of lying in wait in all of our communities, you know, to strike or to activate when Iran says they should do that. Is is that a real risk? Should people really be worried about that? Yes. Yeah, I think it makes sense. If, what was the guy from Project Veritas no longer with him anymore? Uh, James O'Keefe. If James from, O'Keefe from OMG, yeah. can dress up like Osama bin Laden and cross the southern border illegally... Did he do that? Hezbollah yeah. could, for sure. Did yes, he, do- he did do that. You can, yeah. You want to find the video? We should probably find That's that. That's freaking hilarious. That's insane. Okay. Uh, and Well, and to that then, um, you know, what, what do people do about that? 
what do people do about that? Yeah. <laughs> about the border? Well, yeah. okay. Oh, man. Border solutions, there's quite a few. We've well, talked about them before, but... That's not a, maybe specifically like the policy solutions around the border, because okay. that's not something like someone can do something about. That's like oh, a congressional individuals issue. Individuals can do? Yeah, it's like if, if you're worried about like, oh, crap, like there could be violence in you my community to, or okay. something. Part of it is if you're a Democrat, you have to insist upon your Democrat representatives to not see a physical barrier and changes in physical, physical barrier rules as the same thing as racism because it's not right you gotta you gotta you got your expectations have to change on the left if we're going to change anything to, if to, you're a right winger you have to insist that it is both okay to say we're going to put up physical barriers and that it's okay to have more legal immigrants because we do need legal immigrants and it's a good thing for america and there's all kinds of reasons why more legal immigration would reduce the need for physical barriers in like that so like that high level what individuals can do wouldn't have to have a full uh, a three-dimensional mental model in your own brain about the immigration problem and the border problem so and there's sort of this religion. correlation on the left between the wall and just limiting migration uh, immigration in general right. and and on the right there is maybe more of a xenophobic vibe of like we just don't want foreigners coming into the country at all or there's that perception that that's the case on the right which may, right. may or may not be true Obviously, a lot of diversity amongst opinions there. Right. There's some taboos, right? The taboo on the right is that, you know, I, in order for me to be consistent about my point of view about a physical barrier, I have to say I don't want anyone coming in the country, right? And mm -hmm. that's just not true. And that's partially because there is a segment of the population that believes that, yeah. right? We need to persuade those people to be otherwise. We need to, or, you know, move past them and build a coalition that's larger, right? But it's not going to be solved unless people, you know, change their own mind about it. I mean, because and ultimately because it's an economic problem from fundamentally and a lot of people are playing religion games with it, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're working on a basis of magic words of a border wall rather than immigration reform or um, that a border wall is somehow racist, which it isn't, right? Yeah. Uh, things like that. Yeah. Uh, we do have the video. Awesome. <laughs> this is gonna be um, yeah, this is CNN footage from it. This is from nine years ago is when he did this. A dead terrorist walking across the Texas-Mexico border? Uh, Even Osama bin Laden Dude, this cross. is perfect for Halloween. That is he's James O'Keefe, Not bin Laden, James O'Keefe. Wow, he's That's not face. Osama, that's James O'Keefe. <laughs> <laughs> Look how young he looks. Aw. Aw. Oh, when we were all young. That's great. So, who's, like so who's going to dress up as Osama bin Laden for Halloween this year? <laughs> Kyle? <laughs> I don't know about that. Too soon. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that's the uh, that's the, that's a big part of the debate right now is okay. Additional border funding is that going to make a difference? Well, I mean, if it, if it establishes physical barriers, but you have to change the rules. That's the trick. You need immigration reform if you want to secure the border. That's the reality. Otherwise, you just change the economics of it. You just make it a higher bar barrier to cross, but you don't eliminate the incentives. So. Get out to the incentives point, which we've we've beat to death on immigration reform in this podcast. For sure. If you are a small business owner looking for exponential growth, you have to connect with Adam Thune at Intellectual Patriots. He will revolutionize your business game and help you get to the next level. Adam can streamline your business practices and advertising strategies to improve your bottom line. His expertise in data engineering means he can build you the systems you need to collect and analyze market data. His mission is to provide you with invaluable insights to fuel your success. From grant writing and business proposals to digital systems integrations, even AI management, Intellectual Patriots is a one-stop shop for cutting-edge solutions. Don't wait another second. Visit intelpatriots.com to learn more. That's I-N-T-E-L 
Patriots.com. So what we do have is the other, the last part of that is the accusation that cryptocurrency, or sorry, that, um, sorry, that, that the Israel spending here isn't enough or that it should be more or whatever, and that sort of debate. And the question is, is what is going on with the Israel-Hamas war? So let's, let's jump into that. Um, we do have a lot of, of course, social media is still lit up about this. And we got some more videos to react on because uh, that, that is way more fun than listening to me just rant about Israel Hamas for an entire another episode. So what we do know is that the left has decided that the allies aren't doing it right. If you uh, are at all criticizing Israel and you're not a Palestinian, shut up and get out of the way. If Palestinians are telling you that this is what some semblance of revolution looks like for us and you're not listening, you don't care for our liberation. If you have conditions for what our resistance looks like, you are not an ally. If you would prefer to hear yourself speak rather than make space for us to share our stories and speak as experienced experts in our own oppression and share how that trauma has been carried within all of us throughout the diaspora, you are not an ally. If we are to assume that you recognize Palestinians as a marginalized and occupied people and you are not centering us or our struggle in your wishes for peace on the internet, you are not an ally. There are so many of you who need to learn how to hold back your tongues so that you can listen to people who are directly affected. There are also so many of you who think that you are smarter than us, that you have some sort of stronger moral compass than us. You share neutral posts by non-Palestinians widely all over the internet, and you think that you're doing your part. And I want you to know that you are only further harming us. We're asking that you take a seat, choose to listen and amplify and share our voices and our content instead. I promise you, you do not know our struggle, nor do you know our liberation better than we do. David, do you do you know her struggle better than she does? I don't. I don't think I do. But I do think that in a debate that we're trying to build a majority, you need as many voices as you can get. That's a reality. And I, I, there's a very strange habit on the left of saying of trying to censor your own side as if less speech will help you win, hmm. which I don't understand. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I consider myself not on the Palestinian side at all, right? I consider myself on the side of America because that's, that's who I belong to. I'm not and um, a rational person trying to suss out justice in a situation. So I very much am open to listening to any voice that is claiming that what, I, what, I, what frustrates me about it is that's not the only video in this, of this kind that says, Max Blumenthal, you need to be quiet because you're Jewish, and talking about this, right? It's saying, you're not Palestinian, so shut up. And you're like, I could not imagine a faster way for you to marginalize yourself and guarantee your failure. That's a really fair point. I saw a video uh, on Instagram today of Hasidic Jews in New York d- demonstrating in favor of Palestine and and in opposition to Israel, saying it didn't represent the their views of, of Judaism. And if, you know, and if, according to them, if you follow the Talmud and, and, you know, scripture within the Jewish, you know, faith that, that the state of Israel is like antithetical to that. Right. So that would seem to me to be supportive of her story in case. And I don't, I agree with you. I don't see that that is that necessarily would be something you would want to censor. To her, that would be bad ally speech or another one. You're not supposed to judge what revolution looks like. I'm sorry. Yes, I do. I'm sorry. That's what it means to judge. 
That's what it means to be a thinking human being is to say, hey, I don't think that's a good, very good strategy, murdering innocent people. Mm-hmm. If Hamas had limited just what they did only to legitimate military targets, it probably wouldn't have got as much news, but you would have had a much better case for drawing sympathy out of the West. And, 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 and that's not me saying I have a better moral compass than all Palestinians. Maybe I do better than I have a better moral compass or a better strategic thought about this than Hamas. If the goal was to drive attention to the problems that they face as living in this situation that some would describe as an open air prison, I don't think that describes it harshly enough because in prison you get water reliably. Mm. You know, um, if the prison breaks down, they oftentimes can repair it, but you're so blocked off from the outside world you can't get concrete in to repair the bombings from 2006 in 2023 then that's something worse than a prison. So I am I get it. I, I'm trying to understand your point of view, but if you can't if you can't get out of your super lefty postmodern everyone who's not white needs to just shut down and shut up or sorry, everyone who's white needs to shut down and shut up and not talk about this in order for us to get our what we want, I don't I don't think you're gonna win. I think you're gonna get you're gonna be worse off. Yeah, it's not a great way to build a coalition and, and build support for a cause you're trying to champion right to especially tell everyone to shut up especially on your own side the democratic establishment uh and bill maher is not exactly that but I mean, like he's an old school you know lefty he is he is, that a lot of those guys are not with you on this like the traditional allies of the gang of eight and like the more radical democrats just aren't doing either are either they're with you but none of the people who actually matter when it comes to changing u.s policy here much less putting international pressure on so I think in a lot of ways, Palestine's winning the information war, but like a lot of the people that people look to for information makers are not with them. Hmm. For example, Bill Maher has this, this clip, and this is an older clip, so maybe he's changed since then, I don't know, uh, where he, he makes this completely ahistorical case that I think is a good example of how people are thinking about this in religious terms and collectivist terms first, and only second are we thinking in terms of justice. Uh, I would submit that Israel did not steal anybody's land. This is another thing I've heard the last couple of weeks, words like occupiers and colonizers and apartheid, which I don't think people understand the history there. There, there, The Jews have been in that area of the world since about 1200 B.C., way before the first Muslim or Arab walked the earth, a thousand years before I mean, Jerusalem was their capital. Okay, I, so if it's just about who got there first, it's, it's not even close. There have been a continuous Jewish presence. Yes, the, the Jews were the ones who were occupied by everybody. The Romans took over at some point, and then the Persians and the Byzantines, and then the Ottomans. So, yes, there was colonization going on there. Beginning in the 20th, 19th century, they started to return to Palestine, which was not never an Arab country. There was never a country called Palestine that was a distinct Arab country. And yes, there was a, a, a problem there because there was two people who wanted to share the land, which is why the UN in 1947 said, okay, we're going to partition it. I mean, first of all, the two-state solution has been on the table a number of times. There could be a Arab capital in East Jerusalem now if Yasser Arafat had accepted that in 2003. He did not. I mean, they have, they have rejected this and went to war time and time again. 
and apartheid we think of as South Africa. Again, Israeli Arabs do have the vote, and they're in the but parliament, unlike in, in an apartheid. So each one of those things are statements of faith and religion, to be clear. And I don't mean like in the classical sense. I mean, in like the way we use it on this podcast to say like these are magic words in order to fool you into thinking like, oh, my side has a rational argument when it doesn't make any sense with the historical record at all. And to be clear, once again, I'm not on the Palestinian side, but you can't say there weren't people there who spoke Arabic in 1880. Right. You can't say they weren't there in 1910. They were the vast majority, literally hundreds of thousands of them there in those time periods within the current geographic borders of israel present day israel yeah and, and at the time called palestine because sure. that's what the romans called it yeah uh, I, i've never liked the logic for this argument of like going back deep in history for the you know who owns the property type of thing like yeah you can go back to 1200 bc but like the jews also took the land from somebody in 1200 BC. Like, are we Does supposed really to then, belong to the Canaanites? Are, are we supposed to give it to the Canaanites now? You know, or you could use the same argument too of like America. Like, this wasn't American land until it was. Are, are we supposed to go back and just like give it all back to the Native Americans? Are we supposed to correct the wrongs of the conquest? You know, like it becomes this like it's not a useful really argument. It's not like a useful critique. Well, I, I what say. frustrates me about it is it pretends like land title didn't exist in Israel, and it did. In 1858, the Ottoman Empire did what they're called enclosure, their version of enclosure, where they said, we're no longer, property title isn't given by the sultan, it's now something that you can buy and trade and sell as a commodity. With that, 1858, that's 30 years before the Zionist movement started and people started moving there, usually by buying property and moving there voluntarily through voluntary mutual exchange. And there was no problem between Jews and Muslims at that time, because most of this was people legally immigrating there. After World War I, there was a very clear difference in change in how things worked as Jews had a better relationship with the British Empire who now controlled this area and then started importing lots of other Jews. And, you know, not understanding the point of view of the Palestinians who you're, you've been on the same piece of land farming it for years and you've been paying rent to somebody in Istanbul for that entire time. Your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather, for a thousand years, you've been you know, on the same piece of land or in the same area speaking Arabic and, and being Muslim and doing your thing, right? Or let's, let's cut it down. Even 300, 400 years, you've been doing that. And then you have someone show up and say, wow, this land looks really empty. We could fill it full of Jews and call this an Israeli state. Okay. The question is how you do that. And there was a point in time where it was being done very voluntarily, but it still pissed people off, understandably. Imagine this, conservatives. Imagine this, Bill Maher. Imagine if there was an immigration process that you couldn't control, that some faraway authority was controlling it in your stead, that was bringing in a bunch of people that was changing your country, didn't speak the same language as you. In fact, they didn't even speak the same language as the local Jews who are there with you, right? But that's, that outside authority was letting in this huge wave of immigration that was fundamentally changing it. Some of it you liked. Some of it actually brought in more Arab immigration with more economic activity as wealthy immigrants were also moving. Not all of them were wealthy, but a lot of, quite a few of them were. Bankers and lawyers and doctors and things like that changed the face of the area as they had a lot more access to capital and international connections that happened from being from the UK and moving to uh, Palestine at the time, what would become the state of Israel. And you got pissed off about that. Now, what if you're a peasant, you know, like, 
uh, and I mean that technically, a peasant culture, right? If you're if you're a Bedouin culture that has been on the same plot of land as a nomad, then you might take to arms at some point if you don't feel like you're being heard by the colonial power moving in people from another continent back to there. And then they you hear them say, oh, but we actually own this place in the first place. You actually make Bill Maher's argument to them and you say, hey, back in 1200, this was our land. They're like, dude, I've been here for 300 years. How could you say that to me? Right? And, and imagine for a moment if that wasn't from South America. Right? If this is the American experience and a lot of conservatives are pissed off right now with how they feel like their immigration system is not serving Americans. You can now understand how the Palestinians feel. Right? In that time frame from you know, uh, you know, 1920 to 1947, when it was at its height, where a third, we go from 10% to a third of the population being Jewish. Right. And then you say like, that doesn't mean, that means you don't support Zionism. Like, no, no, no. I do support Zionism as an aim. Fine. The question is how you do it. And at one point it got to a head and that was what was called the Nakba. And what frustrates me about Bill Maher's point of view here is that he is saying it didn't happen, right? He's buying into the lie that this, that this process that happened during the independence war wasn't a process of literally taking guns and telling people to get out of your country. This is now your country and you're Arabic and you speak. And what it means to be Arab is just means you speak Arabic, right? A lot of these people aren't necessarily from Saudi Arabia. Originally, a lot of them are, you know, uh, racially still from this place, but they are now Arabic and they're Muslim. They speak Arabic and they're Muslim. So they say, you're the same as an Egyptian. Go to Egypt. You say, I don't want to go to Egypt. This is my property. I've been here for 300 years. And you say, well, you're that's, this is now the Jews territory. And you're going to say, that's not complicated. That that's simple. Come on. Like you're doing such a disservice to your audience by lying to them in that way. Now that doesn't mean you don't support, you have to not support Israel. Or it doesn't mean you don't have to support Zionism because we live a long time from 1948. And I think the current day Jews, those children who are killed in a freaking kibbutz by murderous animals known as Hamas, that those people didn't choose that. And racial guilt is evil. And so holding them accountable to that is evil. So at some point we have to get to peace. We got to value peace more than justice. And so I'm trying, I'm, I don't know if you caught this, but I'm trying to pull in the things that we've talked about through our other, other podcasts and to explain it. Yeah. Um, just to clarify something, um, you referenced the Nakba and a lot of people might not know what that is because it's not like common parlance in history. Right. The Nakba was a forced expulsion of uh, like 700,000 Palestinians. Back in 1947? Yeah. It's between 47 it was before and 48. Right. Stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So by the end of 1948, about 700,000 uh, Arabs had been, uh, been pushed out. You go from 1,500-ish villages to uh, Arab village to 500. Most of them wiped out completely. Like what do you mean wiped out? Like either Leveled. massacred or the mm-hmm. ones next door and massacred. So you left vol- voluntarily. Or you were being bombed by the Egyptians and they thought that you were Israelis and that's why you left. There's all kinds of reasons why the Nakba happened. They're not all just, you know, troops going around moving people violently, right? There were some Muslims leaders who said, hey, get out, understandably, uh, especially, you know, even before the declaration of Israel as a country, uh, I think it was called um, Dasir. It was a small Mm. village by Jerusalem was completely wiped out by Israeli soldiers. And this caused a cascading effect. And I'm talking about like women and children being killed. 
and in an effort to try to cause fear and try to push them out of their area. That is a historical fact. And denying it, to me, is like denying that the Trail of Tears happened. Right? As an American, I can, I can simultaneously say I like America. I like being American. I like understanding like our best parts of our traditions. But if I can't reconcile the evil of our past, I'm doing a disservice to its victims. Right? I can't look at my friends who are Native American and say, I'm just going to just, I'm just going to pretend like you're like, this isn't a something that wasn't an injustice, a terrible, horrible injustice. And I wish it could have been done in a peaceful way on all sides, but it wasn't. And so this is the situation we're in. How do we build a, a world where your children and my children can live in a more peaceful, more prosperous, more harmonious place? That's how, that's, that's always the question that must be balanced against the question of historical injustice. How is it that an event like the Nakba or like that massacre that you talked about this year is able to be completely removed from the conversation? Well, I mean, some of it is because it's a difficult historical question of intent. Like, was this intentional? Was this um, troops who got out of line? And the, I mean, at one point that was very clear. Okay, so I'm, I'm remembering hearing about the Nakba when I was in college and thinking and being told that this was a controversial historical take. That doesn't seem to be where it's at now, right? 2009, there's a certain amount of declassification, and we have not complete declassification of the 1948 Independence War, but we have a lot more material evidence now than we did then. So even over that period of time, there's been a substantial evolution of the known historical material. Um, additionally to that, I mean, to, to put all my cards on the table, I read Benjamin Netanyahu's book way back for a college reading assignment. Right. And I, I get the Israeli side because of that, because it's a, it's a well articulated point of view, but it's it straight up. It's crazy to me just to what degree it's capable for people to lie to their audience hmm. and just, and just completely go by it. Like for example, and this is to go on the other side, Ben Shapiro making the case to his audience that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism is a great example where it just, it's a total manipulation of, his people who trust him to give him to give them accurate and well-reasoned thoughts as the war between israel and hamas grinds on there are three big lies that are currently being told in order to undermine the state of israel and its ability to defend itself lie number one is that israel must be told by all the best people not to violate human rights they have to be told this over now the reason for this lie is to try and create a false moral equivalence between israel and hamas we know that hamas targets civilians so we now have to pretend that israel would target civilians except that we are all telling them not to do so. It's a lie, it's not true, and it's stupid. Line number two that's being promoted. Anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, two sides of the same coin, exactly the same thing. This lie is being promoted in order to really make room for the second lie, which is that anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. Of course, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, destruction of the state of Israel, the belief that the state of Israel ought to be removed from the map is a form of anti-Semitism, and it would end with some seven million dead Jews. And then line number three, it is time for the two-state solution. The question, with whom? So right after a massacre of Jews, the worst since World War II, now is the time for Israel to make concessions to whom exactly? The Palestinian Authority, who are literally paying the family of terrorists? What are you even talking about? He just talks so fast, it's hard for me to even like really process everything <laughs> as it's happening. Yeah. What were the three lies It's amazing again? how much you can fit into a YouTube short. I'm, I'm impressed by it. I mean, he did that in 60 time. seconds. Yeah. We, we've got work to do. Yeah. He's like 3x speed normally. Wow. <laughs> yeah, are we sure that wasn't accelerated? <laughs> no, no. Cocaine bit. That's just what, yeah, that's just the... The cocaine for Ben Shapiro. Cocaine Ben. <laughs> He's so fast. It's amazing. He's like Eminem. So, okay. Um, I think he's right and wrong. Anti-Zionism isn't anti-Semitism, except when it is. Right. Here's what I mean. 
Some people say that if you object to the aims of Jews who want to voluntarily get together with other Jews to create a community of Jews, I don't see what's wrong with it. I don't, I, if that makes me a Zionist, on board. If that means I have to support the Nakba, then I'm not a Zionist because I don't, I don't support that. So it's sort of a, it's a question of the means justifying the ends kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. It, it, there's a difference between being supportive of the vision of Zionism versus being supportive of the way that Israel is conducting its work. Now, you can even say, I do not support, I think there are errors in what the state of Israel has done, and I think they could do better, and here are the opportunities and the particular criticisms. Um, I, I, I wonder to what degree Ben Shapiro is now just becoming a mouthpiece for the state of Israel mm. in this sense, right? Because I haven't heard a single capitulation of any kind of questioning of it. And it's all just justifications. And I don't see how you can have an objective state if you don't have any criticisms. Yeah. Um, and, and then uh, that might actually give a lot of people who are trying to get themselves to understand the, uh, the, the Zionist side, some more ability to differentiate you from a mouthpiece of the IDF. Because that's not what I go for my conservative commentators for, is to be a mouthpiece of a government. Sure. Even a well-meaning, even if it's the better one. I mean, like, the decision that you have to choose, like, who's the good guy, Hamas or Israel state government, he says is moral equivalence because of their intent to kill. Hamas intends to kill innocents, and the IDF is always motivated by the desire not to kill innocents. And I would be with you if I hadn't seen video of... Israel snipers shooting a guy and then laughing about it. Just some guy? A protester at the Great March of Return. Mm. And I'm told that there are more than one of these videos and that they exist. Um, and that this is a non-small thing. Um, a Western Palestine, Western Gaza, uh, Western West Bank. West Bank, West Bank. Said kid was shot just like a day or two ago. And you say you're you're told that these videos exist? Like, no, I've seen them. You've seen no, them? No, yeah, yes. like I, I've definitely watch, 100%. Watch Killing Gaza. Yeah. Watch the documentary Killing Gaza. I, I've seen countless videos of IDF soldiers um, shooting Palestinians down, like countless. Yeah, and yeah. and to say that they're all Hamas is, and they're all motivated to, by the right way. Okay, let me, let me make this clear. When my son says, I didn't mean to hurt my sister, I say, I get it, son. You're bigger than your sister, and it's easy to hurt her. She's small. So it doesn't really matter what you mean to do. Your intent matters. I, I sympathize with you because it's an accident. But what matters is that you hurt her. And so you have to balance both of those needs, both intent. At one point, murder is manslaughter. And another point, it's murder. Right? At one point, killing somebody is manslaughter. At one point, it's murder. First degree, second degree. So how much you intend to kill someone really matters, but you still serve time for manslaughter. So um, you say, hey, these, uh, if, if you're in the position as a commentator, as someone who's trying to help people understand the world, and you have to ask them to say, no, every soldier in the IDF is always motivated only by the good. I'm sorry, I'm not with you. No, no, no group is like that. That's not how it works, especially in war. Yeah, so w would Ben Shapiro call you know, the, the Hasidic Jews in the video that I saw who are anti-Zionist, would, would he call them self-hating? Would he call them anti-Semitic? Let's ask him. ...message for this Nakba day, for this 75 years of occupation, we want the world to know that what is being perpetrated against the Palestinian people, the oppression, the subjugation, the terrible cruelty 
is not in the name of our religion. It is not in the name of the Star of David. It is not in the name of the Jewish people around the world who are true to the Jewish religion. Because we are Jewish and because we are true to our religion, we are in total opposition to the existence of the Zionist state of Israel. I call it Zionist state of Israel because it is Zionist. It is not Jewish. Judaism in the Torah forbids Jews to have our own sovereignty, our own entity since the destruction of the temples and Jews true to the Torah. That kind of covers it. Yeah. And I think I misspoke earlier. I might have said the Talmud. I think I meant the Torah, of course. Yeah, not yeah a, Torah is the first five books. Not an Bible. expert on t- t- Judaism. Talmud came like 400 years after, um, like it's like 480. It's like a extra content. <laughs> you can think of it as the DLC to the to Judaism. The director's cut. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so the the idea that everyone who is anti-Zionist is anti-Semitic is like, in a sense, you could say that, but no, of course not. I mean, obviously, you could say this guy is doesn't hate Jews. He doesn't hate the Jews who live in Israel. I mean, you are imparting the worst possible motive to someone who's trying to say, look, I'm trying to understand this point of view. I'm trying to engage in good faith here, and I really would like to be able to do so without being accused of being a racist. Just like as a conservative who's trying to say, hey, I'm trying to understand the disproportionality of blacks' involvement in crime, and I want to do so with good faith, and I don't want to be accused of racism just by trying to understand. Sure. Right? And so when I see data, I'm trying to, I'm trying to unpack that data and like, engage with it. And when I see a historical event like the Nakba, and then, you know, you got girl TikTok, you know, trying to debunk propaganda by perpetuating a set of propaganda, I very quickly go like, how do we how do we help an audience? How do we help anyone who's well-meaning actually want to get a grasp here to understand this when the people who they're going to for content to understand this are lying to them about this or just or just skipping over it? Because if you if you say that oh none of it was by force, you're at, you're being absolutely silly because that's not the historical record at this point. We have the orders on paper that say get the Arabs out of this town, this place, that sort of thing. That's the standard that we're at now. And yet you're using talking points from 2009. Israel is committing a genocide. It is ethnically cleansing the Palestinians. Mm. No, the population of Palestine has grown sixfold in the past 60 years. Occupation! Israel is occupying Gaza. Mm. No, Israel pulled all of its forces out of Gaza in 2005. Apartheid. Israel is an apartheid state. Mm. 2.1 million Arabs live and work and vote and hold office in Israel. There are Israeli Arabic parliament members and Supreme Court members and university professors and doctors. Stop following trends and start reading the facts. Are these facts? Well, that's the trick is like there's essence of truth to some of them. Like, for example, uh, and this is kind of on Bill Maher, you know, point too, is that it is an apartheid state because there are Arab Israelis. You have to make a set of distinctions because what this does is it doesn't actually help people make a conclusion about the state of what's going on here. There's a difference between an Israeli citizen and a Palestinian. An Israeli citizen has all the rights of an Israeli citizen. A Palestinian has no rights. They are a stateless people. So they have no international leverage, really. Like they can't... um you know, they can't just like go to the UN and be like, hey, we got this problem. Right? They can't go like, to a no. court. Right now, there, there are and there are process processes they use for 
Palestinians. But a lot of that has drawn criticism as a not the same process they use for their own citizens. And the expectation there is that there should be like a single state solution where all Palestinians are given the same right as Israelis. I'm not sure that that's the good or the bad. I'm not trying to judge that. But you can't deny that there's a bunch of people who live and work in Israel who have property title that is invalid in Israel but precedes the state of Israel who want to live there and they aren't given the same rights to property that they otherwise would because they were kicked out with the Nakba. But they, they live in Gaza. They are older than the state of Israel itself. They were born in 1940 and they're still alive and they're over there and they're saying, hey, I would like to go to my childhood home and I, you can't. Then you say, like, that's not apartheid. Well, it's not exactly. You're right. It's not. Because in the African, South African state, they were all citizens, but they had two sets of rules, right? It's not Jim Crow South. They're all citizens, but they have two sets of rules. One's a citizen, an Israeli Arab, and one is not. That doesn't prove that there isn't an apartheid-like experience where you have two sets of rules, right? If you, if, if, if you got your license plate based upon whether or not you're a Palestinian or an Israeli Arab, doesn't matter to you. When you know that that different license plate is going to be treated differently based upon whether or not you're a citizen. Right? Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. So it's, it's easier to think about it like as if we hadn't yet made Native Americans, to, to help Americans think of this, it's kind of as if we hadn't already made it where Native Americans are citizens. Right? We hadn't passed that constitutional amendment to make that happen. In that time period, Natives existed in this place where they couldn't vote, but they lived in the geographically you know, monopoly control state of the United States government, but they didn't have the same rights of rights because they weren't citizens. Does that make sense? Yeah. So a justice was done when we said, Native Americans, you now have voting rights, due process rights, property rights that we will respect because you are now a citizen. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. That's what they're relying on to make this apartheid analogy, not straight up just like saying this is apartheid. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and they're saying like it has the same moral character, right? That, that, it, it's, it's not like it's literally a concentration camp, but it's but got, it kinda is. It's got the aspects of it. It's got the vibe of it. Well, it's got if, the moral if, framework of it. If you can't leave it by sea, how do you turn it into the next Hong Kong? I, I watched a guy say that he's, he's debating someone else and he's saying, you know, the, if, if Hamas and the uh, Palestinians didn't love living in the dirt so much, they would have made Gaza into the next Hong Kong. What that doesn't say is that fishermen from Gaza can only go out a certain distance because if you go out any further, an Israeli boat will blow you up. That there are repeated flotillas of Code Pink and other groups who are trying to smuggle water and medicine and things like that into Gaza, right? Who get caught by Israeli boats, right? You are literally, you've, you've completely encircled them with a monopoly of force so overwhelming that you have automatic AI machine gun turrets and that's how the system works. And then you're saying, well, you could have just made yourself into a state. And it's like, no, you, you've made, you're, it's, a, it's something else, right? It doesn't exist in any of these categories neatly. But what we do know is that this is a, this is a situation that there is an incentive of incentives and a set of people in Israel who don't want a solution, who want all the territory of Palestine to be Israeli. And they've implemented a strategy in the, in the West Bank to try to make it so. So... Uh, but we can't get into that. So anyways, we're running out of time on this one. I don't want to talk about the entire session again. I'm sorry. I'm still obsessed on this. I'm going to be giving a speech in Bozeman about this in a couple of weeks. Oh, you are? Uh, next next week, uh, I'm going to talk to Young Americans for Liberty about Israel-Palestine. So um, 
if you're in Bozeman, please stop by and take a look at it. And I'll hopefully be able to give a thorough, like chronological breakdown of this stuff. So people can get their minds around it. Do you have date and time handy? Oh, on me? Uh, yeah. I'm going to look it up. Or you're looking it up. <laughs> um, if we want to transition into the next topic. I um, do. I just want to kind of put yeah. a bow on that and just say, you know, maybe as a, a little bit of a word of caution to people, maybe be careful. Just be careful out there. There's a, as demonstrated by everything we just looked at, there are a lot of opinions on all these sides. There's a lot of detail to all these issues. So maybe just like before you buy in wholesale to something, think as critically as you can about it. Try to find a variety of sources. Try to find you know people with differing opinions, and just understand that not every influencer on TikTok, including ourselves at this table, have all the answers. We're all just trying to suss this out, and um, you know just don't uh, don't subscribe yourself to to an idea that before you really totally understand all the depth of it or as much as you possibly can. Right. I, th- I think it's okay to be wrong, right? Engage in the space, but engage in good faith. Be willing to change your mind. Yeah. Right. But like also like be aware that there's a lot of propaganda going on right now. Like For sure. the manipulations we've seen there. Yeah. So we had well, another story that came up with the mosque accepting Bitcoin. Before we go, did yeah. you get date and time of your thing? You talk? Oh yeah. Yeah. Next uh, Saturday at seven o'clock Saturday. That yeah. is just reach out on discord. That is November 4th yep. at 7 o'clock. Yep. Find us on Discord if you want some more details. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to unf*** the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. A lot's going on in the crypto world right now. I, I'm getting countless messages from people being like, what's going on with Bitcoin? Because Bitcoin's been on the rise. But something that we have here that kind of does tie a little bit of a bow on the Hamas story is that the Wall Street Journal came out saying that Hamas um, accepted $130 million in crypto donations. And it turns out this entire story is false. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. And, but it didn't stop Elizabeth Warren from going crazy. And then also 100 congressmen signing a letter to Joe Biden to crack down on crypto because it is actively funding terrorism, because it's $130 million. But what actually happened when you actually look at everything on chain is this group, they looked at some random exchange and they looked at, oh, Hamas is receiving uh, money because Hamas does actively accept crypto donations. It does. But they looked at it and they saw, oh, there's money inflows coming in from this exchange and they could track it on chain. Um, Turns out it was about $450,000. And what this, what the Wall Street Journal then did is they looked at the entire volume of the exchange of all crypto moving on the exchange and they saw 130 million. And then they reported that number. So it's just like journalists that don't even actually understand what they're talking about. Just saying that Hamas came in and, and uh, was accepting all this money from people. Hmm. And they're straight up like blaming people in the crypto industry of like this person sending money and this person sending money. And it's all false. It's all false. And the wall street journal now having that information there is refusing to retract the story as of right now. But you, what you end up having right here is it, there's talk about it going on at the floor of the Senate right now. And I have a video from Senator Haggerty, who is uh, correcting the record of uh, the Wall Street. of uh, um, Elizabeth Warren's 
malfeasance, I will say, as she is obviously the uh, the real banker candidate, the banker senator. But. Journal recently reported that Hamas and Palestine Islamic Jihad since 2021 have received roughly $130 million in crypto financing via offshore exchanges and platforms like Binance. It's important to note that these figures are disputed and per independent analysis that was released just this week could be overestimated by as much as 99%. <laughs> the data analytics firm cited in this Wall Street Journal report has even disputed the estimates that were reported, stating that there is no evidence to suggest that Hamas fundraised anything close to this $130 million reported. Make no mistake, any such funding is unconscionable and should be addressed in a thoughtful, targeted way in order to choke off these terrorists. But we should do this without pushing the crypto industry overseas. In this case, we need a scalpel, not a sledgehammer. Yeah. So, uh, and this is this is also the the important aspect of this, is the exchange caught this, they caught Hamas doing this, and they actively blocked Hamas. So it's not even like they saw that this was happening and they stopped it. but And they stopped it when it was about $450,000. And this exchange specifically that we're referring to is Binance? No, no, no. It's some small exchange. Um, I don't even know the name of it. It's like something that you wouldn't even use in America. Um, it's like OK Exchange or something. It's like some small exchange with low volume. Like sure. They're reporting $130 million in volume, which isn't really that much as yeah. a total volume. Yeah. Kyle, only the Israeli government gets to give money to Moss. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Only the Israeli government gets to do that. <laughs> Check out part three. Anyways, yeah. But there's some interesting things about the future of kind of journalism that come out of this story is that there's now bounties being set for people to track on chain. Um, Nick Carter, who's been kind of the big guy covering this story, he put out the first 21 people to give like a, a good full on chain report showing. Um, showing that the Wall Street Journal is just completely wrong and they need to retract this story. They'll get $500 in Bitcoin. So it's just kind of interesting that there's a, like bounty hunts that are being had to, to find truth. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, Nick Carter obviously is a prominent figure in the, in the Bitcoin space, mm-hmm. uh, Bitcoin investor and venture capitalist and all sorts of things. So he has vested interest in, in making sure that uh, this story, if it is false, uh, doesn't result in a lot of, FUD or fear, uncertainty, and doubt around Bitcoin, right? Because that would dramatically reduce the value of his holdings of Bitcoin. So just to clear the air on, mm-hmm. on that sort of, you know, incentive that he has in that, in that case, uh, is he also incentivized, even if it's, uh, if the $130 million figure is true, would he be incentivized to sort of want to reduce that number if at all possible? Well, here's the thing is it's not true. Like you can actively see it on chain. Right? So how, how would somebody, <laughs> how would somebody listening to this verify that or like go and see on chain analytics. Cause that's, that, that's maybe something that people don't really understand. What does that mean? Um, magic. so magic. yeah, it's, it's magic internet money. It's all fake. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. So, um, and important, important before we even go deeper into this topic, none of this is financial advice. NFA. <laughs> right. Yep. Not financial advice Do your own research, research things before you kind of go diving ape into everything. Um, but uh, what was your question? It was uh, how would they GameStop do it? Sh- shares now. That's what we're saying. Yeah. Oh my right? god! Now, Dogecoin to the moon. You're right? going to go bankrupt. Sorry, no, I am going to censor both of you, <laughs> Jake. That's a joke. Jake Strike that from it. the it's record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, 
Yeah, no, there there's platforms that actively will like if you're on Ethereum, it's Etherscan. There's uh, there's a bunch of different things for Bitcoin where you can actively track wallet movement and and see inflows and outflows out of exchanges and all this stuff. Like it's all transparent. Unlike the current financial you know system that we all operate in, where everything's like obfuscated. Uh, in crypto, you can actually just generally see everything. So anybody that wants to put in the work to be able to see the, see all of this for itself, you can just do that. Yeah, so keep in mind that crypto's core comparative advantage is that it's on a public ledger. Mm-hmm. So when they make a claim, it's easy to verify it, or to, to verify it to be true or false. It would never have gotten the traction it did unless the Wall Street Journal story was false, right? And then additionally that, while they have a they have a incentive for them to reduce that number by assessment, if they couldn't have done that, I don't think it would have got the same amount of returning attention. Right. They would have said, no, actually, this is true. We can see it on the right. public ledger and you're wrong. So there's a huge difference between debating a hospital bombing, you know, in a situation where there is no press and we're just going off what the IDF says or what the Palestinians say, as opposed to this, where it's a public ledger that you can get on. Anyone can get on a website and see how the Bitcoin ledger is. Like. You could put the entire ledger on your computer. Mm-hmm. It'll take some time, but you can. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, but I think it's just kind of an interesting show, showcasing, especially where we have we have a free speech platform, generally so, with X right now, and we're able to kind of, nobody's censoring anything, and you're actively seeing these bounties be made to be able to get closer towards truthful information, to, to actively combat Senator Warren's lies, right? Like, that, that's just interesting from a uh, where we're at as a society and from a technological point. I think there's just kind of a... It's useful to kind of remember that. My cypherpunk is definitely very turned on by this idea, yeah. right? It's like that idea that um, bottom-up processes can counter and are actually more powerful than top-down. That that idea that we can use technology to liberate people so that they can have independence from the controlling institutions that they've grown up with and, and create new institutions. Those ideas are incredibly t- intoxicating for folks who grew up with the early internet in the early 2000s and the 90s that saw the frontier and were saying, what's all the capabilities that we could possibly happen out of this? Um, and it's cool to have a story amongst all of the dreariness of the moment that actually shows some of that. Well, it, it is kind of funny too, because I've had tons of people messaging me and a lot of people that don't really understand what's going on because Bitcoin's price has gone up 30% in the last week. And a lot of people are being like, people are fleeing to Bitcoin right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> like everybody's doing that whole thing. It's like, mm, that's not actually what's happening right now. Um, so another big kind of news right now in the crypto space is that um, basically over the last while now, there's been all these spot ETFs that have been seeking approval with the SEC. Um, and it's looking like those are all about, or most of them are probably in the very near future going to be approved. When what a spot ETF is, is essentially it's a financial instrument to be able to have exposure to Bitcoin. You're essentially like, or, or exposure to anything like a spot ETF is like there's You can, you can buy a spot ETF, like for gold and stuff where you're buying into some a shares into a fund of the product. So for instance, and yeah. the ETF, just to be clear is, is available for trade on like the stock exchanges, exchange, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And so like, for instance, um, what this does now is a lot of people that otherwise wouldn't go through the hassle of like owning Bitcoin and getting your private keys and all this stuff. Um, they can now just like buy into the exposure of it in the same way where the first gold spot ETF was made in 2004. And 
now there's a lot of people that like, they really like gold, but they don't want to go through the hassle of owning gold, putting in a safe deposit box, all this stuff. Like it's, it's kind of unmanageable really. But you should, if you're going to buy gold, buy physical yeah, gold. I'm but just you say could, that. Or what most people really do is they just buy the iShare spot ETF for gold. Um, and they buy black, which is BlackRock. <laughs> and just pray that uh, they'll always have your gold somewhere and that mm-hmm. you, if you ever want to repatriate it, uh, mm-hmm. that they actually have it somewhere, which they probably It would be don't. fraud if they didn't have it, though. Right? Well, I think there's a pretty substantial record, and I don't have any proof of, of it here now in front of me, but of manipulation within the paper, gold, oh, yeah. and silver markets. I mean, this is pretty well substantiated stuff. <laughs> so I would say, not financial advice, but... Uh, I like having physical gold if, if I'm going to own gold. Yeah, so so basically <laughs> what's happening right now is everybody's kind of pricing in that these spot ETFs are going to be getting approval right now. And, you know, for instance, when the first gold spot ETF uh, was formed, gold went up 5x. Like, so people are kind of like, because like I said, a lot of people that otherwise wouldn't have had exposure to gold then got exposure to gold. They didn't have the physical stuff, but they got the shares of it, Right. right? And that's exactly what's happening with Bitcoin right now and why the price is going up is because it looks like Gary Gensler's finally going to cave on this stuff. And this has been in the works for years. I remember... I mean, 2016. It, yeah, it's been oh, a yeah. long time that these have been these ETFs have been proposed and they've been shut down, proposed and shut down. So it seems like it's finally going to happen. I don't get it, though. Why would you... I mean, it's so easy to buy Bitcoin and I have know. your own wallet. I just don't understand. I also think it's ridiculous, yeah. Dave, that, that this is a thing. But I, I think it makes sense for corporate entities. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of hassle, especially if, like, you're kind of sharing things. Like, yeah, you can do multi-sig addresses and all this stuff, and you can be very wonky with it. But I think for a lot of corporate entities that want to have, like, on their treasury mm-hmm. um, some sort of exposure to a hard asset, like Bitcoin's hard in the monetary sense, um, but uh, they don't want to kind of deal with all the extra hassle. They're just like, yeah, Larry Fink, handle my Bitcoin for me, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. kind of what it is. Um, but... Yeah, um, I think there there is kind of this question, and I saw this tweet. Um, Luke 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 Renkowski, uh, tweeted, and I've often kind of shared this opinion of you end up having uh, right here. Uh, what what the fuck happened to you guys, Bitcoin? <laughs> Bitcoin in twenty thirteen, you have death of death to the banks, and then Bitcoin in twenty twenty three, you have BlackRock. Please buy us, <laughs> right? But I do think that there's an element here of. Um, Bology kind of responded to this and he's a he's a big guy in tech um but bitcoin etfs represent capitulation all right but by the system sec fought it for a reason it's true that non-custodial bitcoin may be seized but the capital influx also bids up the price of self-custodied bitcoin on net it's a win and there is a certain sense here where larry fink was going on 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 cnbc and all these shows saying that why would you ever have bitcoin it's useless blah 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 and now he's finally capitulating and he is going on all the shows saying like everybody wants it (laughs) yeah i don't necessarily i mean the skeptic in me does not necessarily see that as capitulation i see that as manipulation okay larry fink is a savvy investor we've talked about this before they're not going to buy bitcoin at its peak they're going to wait till it gets as low as possible and then they're going to throw some more fud at it and get it as low as possible and then they're going to buy in and then they're going to talk to their boy gary gensler and they're going to get an etf approved and they're going to get all this corporate money in and get people all stoked on it and meanwhile they've bought in at the bottom that makes complete sense to me so when i look at this i don't look at this as uh the the market saying yeah now okay actually we we give up bitcoin does have value i see this as they're just savvy and they're playing momentum but that's just me well and uh 
there is an element too of like they didn't buy the clear bottom. It doesn't seem like, but they bought relatively close because the bottom was around sixteen thousand. And it turns out the bottom of this market was when all the scammers went to jail, right? <laughs> I suppose that's a good indicator. Yeah, because you had uh, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried is currently on trial after a year ago uh, FTX collapsed. Wait, and who's that? Or who's who's Sam Bankman-Fried again? Sam Bankman-Fried. He's the. Um, oh yeah, here I actually I got a video that I think really. Oh God, clearly show shows, me who he is. <laughs> clearly shows who <laughs> Sam Bankman-Fried is. I want to I want to apologize to all the uh, audio only people. This uh, this is a video of him doing a TikTok dance. <laughs> the title says, "How does it feel to be the richest under thirty year old in the world?" And I would really recommend just watching this video because <laughs> yeah. it is glorious. Awesome. My life, life is a movie, movie for real. real. <laughs> Absolute being poor sucks. What That's motivated money. you? The cars, the clothes, more importantly, the hose. Oh my God. <laughs> That's not the oh real TikTok man. video. That's not the real one. <laughs> I'm so glad. But the cringy look on his face, it's just so awful. Like, but, I don't get me wrong. But it is. Um, he was like he was doing all these TikToks with like Tom Brady and there was uh, all these Steph Curry, all these people. He, you know, it was all the Super Bowl ads. FTX bought the naming rights to the, the Miami uh, Stadium, all this stuff. Right. Um, so he was kind of everywhere. Like he was on billboards. He was kind of this like super nerd that's going to kind of like save the world. He's going to be the first trillionaire and all that. And it turns out it was all built on lies. All of this money where it was coming from was him literally stealing customer funds uh, from people that were putting money on the exchange on his exchange. And then they were putting it into and then they had a backdoor with Alameda Research, which was the a separate firewalled off hedge fund that was then trading using customer funds. And they were using those customer funds to buy all this stuff. Right. And he is currently on trial right now. He has been for the last two weeks. And actually, right now, as we're speaking, he's uh, he's testifying in front of uh, the jury, but he also testified without the jury yesterday. And he is just self-incriminating himself. <laughs> like, oh, man. I uh, mean, th- that's not entirely surprising because what I saw of him during the interim period between FTX collapsing and him actually being arrested, it was him like doing this, you know, public tour, tour. of media outlets, like just talking about this stuff it had to have been completely contrary to his attorney's advice because he was just like completely making an idiot of himself and admitting it. He did all these things wrong and apologizing about this and that made no sense at all. Yeah. I, what I like about just, it is how truthful he is, right? Like, like his, his, uh, and we now have his text messaging about just how truthful he is about FTX's so-called wokeness and what they, what, what he really thinks of it. And now when you read this, hey, Kyle, you want to read them? Yeah. When, when cool. Kyle reads this, I really want you to think about all of the preachiness of Western corporations this is probably what they really think when they do the woke stuff they do. Yeah. So, and this was a text message with a journalist, uh, um, Kelsey Piper. Um, apparently he just like, will talk to journalists. Like it's like cute female journalist. I will talk to you. And this is like in the aftermath, this is just what he was doing. So you ended up having all these like, like random journalists just actively talking about with things like on the record and be like, Oh, I guess. Yeah, sure. You can post that. Like it's very, very strange. It's very strange. Um, but yeah, so he, so she asked him, so the ethics stuff, mostly a front people, um, people will like you if you win and hate you if you lose. And that's how it all really works. He says, yeah, I mean, that's not all of it, but it's a lot. The most, the worst quadrant is sketchy plus lose. And that's in quotes. The best quadrant is win plus question mark. Um, clean plus lose is bad, but not terrible. 
And then she asks, so you were really good at talking about ethics for someone who kind of saw it all as a game with winners and losers. He says, yeah, he, he, I had to be. It's what reputations are made of to some extent. I feel bad for those who get fucked by it, by this dumb game we woke Westerners play where we say all the right shibboleths and so everyone likes us. And some of the context around this. Based. So, so he, was this, <laughs> he was this big guy um, preaching effective altruism, which is this philosophy of ethics that's been perpetrated by like tech bros at TED Talks um, of it's kind of like a rationale for making a bunch of money so you can all give it up later on. Um, like, like that's kind of the whole premise of here is like, I'm going to make a trillion dollars and then I'm going to give it all away. Oh, so it's like a way of absolving yourself of the guilt of, or, yeah. or the, the reputational harm in society of being, you know, this super wealthy, successful person. Yeah. And, and there's books that are written about this. It's passed along at all the cocktail parties of all like the wealthy circles and stuff. Like it's a very pervasive ideology that does it kind of exist in like the Silicon Valley tech crowd. It, it um, very much exists there. Um, there's a lot to be said around like utilitarianism of it. Like it's a very utilitarian ideology where it's kind of um, at any cost. Uh, it doesn't really matter what you kind of have to do to get the money. But as long as you're using it in the end for good purposes, it's all good. Right. The ends justify the means. Yeah. It's very much mm. like that. Right. Um, We're seeing a lot of that across the things we talk about. Lately. Yeah. Nothing more nihilistic than that calculation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's worth saying too, I would say kind of to, to defend my people. Um, who, are, who are your people? Who are your people? Penguins. No, uh, <laughs> the, the crypto, like crypto people at large. Um, there's kind of this sentiment of like, this entire place is just filled with scams and like all the people are bad and all this stuff. Um, the thing about Sam Bankman fried, it was, it was, it was really the outsiders that loved him. The crypto people themselves didn't really, they saw him very much as this like, um, opportunist. He, he was not very well loved with, uh, among kind of crypto native types. He was very much loved by these outsiders during the COVID time that were like now kind of getting interested in crypto. And he was very much loved by like the media class, um, which is very different. Like, and that's a very kind of an important understanding. Like there was a lot of people that were kind of like skeptical of Sam. Yeah. Um, well, I think that makes sense too, right? Because his parents were or are both Ivy League professors, are they not? One is hit Harvard, one yeah. Stanford, I want to say. We did a podcast on this some time ago, like uh, who he is and kind of his background. He had a lot of incestuous elite relationships. Right. Um, if I remember. And so he was sort of, you know, woven into that culture and that crowd. And so, of course, there would be perhaps an inherent degree of trust about him because he's he's one of them. Yeah. So in uh, Bloomberg, they put out a documentary two days ago. I watched it. Um, it has a lot of the classic trappings of journalists that don't really know what they're talking about. But if you want the full timeline, uh, the Bloomberg documentary is pretty good. Just kind of ignore where the journalists are poking in their own ideas in there because it's kind of eh. <laughs> as, as a crypto native person, I'm just kind of like, eh. but uh, th there are elements of some some people in there, I think, are really good th that we're talking about it. There's a lot of like the citizen journalist types that were hit up to uh, talk about their perspective. But um, this uh, right here is um, Alex Svanovic. He's the CEO of Nansen, which is a great on-chain analytics group, um, fellow Penguin. And he was, uh, he was um, kind of asked about the reputation that Sam had among crypto types. 
SBF's reputation among those of us who work in crypto and are very active in crypto was not as positive as he was portrayed in the mainstream media. He was perceived more as someone who was quite mercenary and a bit of an opportunist. I heard stories uh, already in 2020 about how he kind of mistreated counterparties that were in a weaker position. So I think many of us in crypto had a bit more of a hesitation when it came to the sort of king status that he was getting. I think many of us feel like perhaps we should have spoken up. But at the same time, it's difficult when you have someone who gets that popular and that powerful so quickly. And if you do speak up, you might not have all the evidence because a lot of this is rumor based. And so you take a big risk if you do speak up. Right. And how many people would have reacted to someone speaking up as you're just sour grapes? You wish you were loved by Steph Curry, too, the way Sam Bakeman Freed is. Mm -hmm. um, but that's also like should be a major trigger for anyone who's carefully uh, trying to avoid the kind of traps we talk about on our podcast so often, which is if the if the consent machine decides that this person who is brand new to this particular industry is now the darling child of it that that's a good sign that this is probably um, not a very good person to put your faith in. Yeah, it's a bit of a red flag. Yeah, well, and he, it, it was interesting because like he just kind of played all, all this, uh, th there was this vibe about him where like there was all these videos about like, I'm just this guy with a Corolla. Like, and they're like, where's your Lambo, bro? And they're like, at your car? That can't be your car. And it's just like a, like a Toyota, you know? Like, <laughs> um, and it's just like, it turns out it was all... I mean, like he basically owned this entire block in the Bahamas that was like all of his employees were working at and stuff is where all the uh, there's a lot of rumors about sex parties that were going on there. May, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> the whole but story around him is pretty fascinating. Well, and there's also this element of all the people that he put around him. Like there's this guy, his name's like Dan Friedberg. He was part of... Um, uh, I can't remember the poker website. There was a, there was a website where he was effectively playing with God mode on his po poker website and just scamming people. Hmm. So like he had a God mode where he could see his opponent's cards and he was actively playing against users on the website. Oh and God. this was like his main guy. This was one of his main guys at FTX. It was like the same guy <laughs> with that background. Yeah. Which, in, which is basically what Alameda research was doing is they basically had God mode on trading and they could just like, they're just like straight up liquidating people by manipulating the market. Market, hmm. um, on the FTX platform. Yeah, it looks right. like Dan Friedberg was FTX's lawyer, and he was a key figure in the notorious Ultimate Bet poker cheating yep, scandal. That's what it is, yeah. So yeah. You, you end up having, and then a, a lot of the witness testimony at the trial right now is you have like um, one of his main guys, Gary Wang. He's actively saying that, like, oh, Trump, or Trump, <laughs> <laughs> um, weird Freudian slip, uh, Sam wanted me to code in the back door. So I did 100% code in the back door. And then in his testimony, uh, Sam's just being like, I had no idea. I had no clue that this was going on. Right. So this really kind of becomes the question is someone's clearly lying. And this is kind of the, the um, front of it, but defense isn't doing well. Um, the, the, the judge is getting mad at the defense. They, they think like all the witnesses that they're bringing up, um, the judge is like, this is all a waste of time. Like the judge is actively saying that, right? I mean, okay, um, I'm going to, I'm going to just pull my skeptic card here and, and speculate on some stuff. Mm -hmm. This seems so. So what happened with these funds, right? With the, the customer funds, $8 billion. Where's the money, Kyle? Most of them or a lot of them, right? Were, were donated to, uh, senators and representatives campaigns, mm -hmm. right? On both sides of the aisle, to be fair. 
A lot of them were, were donated. Sam specifically says, yes, I donated all this to the Democrats, but I donated a lot to the Republicans too, but it was dark because of the shibboleth problem, right? Because Where it wouldn't look as good in the public if he was donating to both. Okay, but to me, like, all of his behavior suggests that he isn't working with a full deck, right? He's either extremely autistic, probably is, and doesn't, doesn't really, like, understand the implications of what it is, all the things that he's saying and why he shouldn't say these things. He doesn't have like, the, there's no like strategic thinking here. Like he's not a criminal mastermind. He seems to me like a classic fall guy. Like he's been put up to just front this company, send a bunch of money to these, to these campaigns that, uh, that, you know, we, they want to support. And then uh, he does poorly in the trial. Maybe he gets a plea deal and gets off with something less than jail time. Or maybe he just goes to jail. I don't know. Well, to it's me, too, this, it's too late for a plea deal. Like he's going to be, yeah, if they're at trial at this point, he's he might get off light on punishment, but that's the judge's decision. Sure. So it, no matter what happens, it's it probably just, a life sentence. It doesn't seem to me like this is a criminal mastermind we're working with here. He seems, I mean, for being very like brilliant, maybe like he seems this pretty. This, dumb. this is the interesting thing about Sam. So like he, how he initially made all of his money is he was arbitrage trading uh, currency markets in Japan. So. He's just, he's just doing wonky currency trading. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's all arbitrage. So, but, and then it sounds like, and this is according to Caroline Ellison's uh, testimony, who was the CEO of Alameda, his off and on girlfriend. There's a lot of memes about her on the internet. You've probably seen them. Um, she, she was just kind of like, Sam just kind of approached me and convinced me that we should just like start up in this crypto thing. Like they weren't really involved in crypto. They weren't really crypto natives necessarily. They're just like, there just seems like a really good opportunity and they produced FTX. That's my understanding of how like the beginnings of FTX allegedly started. So like, is there a bigger thing behind there? I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. I don't know. I just like it speculating have to be that. up front. It could be that that's just how it winds up it was because up- of this guy just kind of being like, yeah, well, everyone who wants to keep liking me, I have to donate to the Democrats. And, oh, I, I guess I'll donate to the Republicans so they like me too, but I got to keep that up behind the scenes. And then, you know, I got to make sure I'm woke and I'm an effective altruist. And I say all these things in order to perpetuate what feels good, which is that everyone loves me, right? right? And then he's just going to keep doing that. And then it's, it's a big scam. So maybe there's not a grand conspiracy, but he was at very least, it seems like he could have easily been taken advantage of right. for the purposes of funding all these campaigns. And- and, and he was saying else. he was on track to donate a billion dollars in 2024. That was his ultimate goal was like soft cap, something like a billion dollars, which would be like the biggest political donation ever. Really? Um, crazy. Yeah. Just crazy. I mean, and super unfortunate for all the people that, that trusted what seemed like a very legitimate organization with their money. Well, well and this is the important thing is that um, FTX's collapse was a big deal because Prior to that, there was a big collapse of a currency, Terra Luna is a whole thing that caused a massive contagion across the market where all these people that were invested in this new upstart, innovative stablecoin project, et cetera, um, kind of started to go under. So FTX was going in and buying all these people. And it's one of those things where Brian Armstrong from Coinbase is like, how is he getting all this money? <laughs> like he's trying to, he's like working out their numbers. He has like a pretty good idea because they're both exchanges operating. And it's like, how is he getting all this money? Um, like that's what he said on the all in podcast when he was talking about, like, did you see any signs of this? But, um, so you have Sam just going in and buying up all these different, uh, um, companies that are falling as, as crypto prices crashing because there's all this, a lot of people aren't getting their money back on loans basically. So you have the contagion that just continues and continues to spread. And the final nail in the coffin was a lot of 
So Sam had 12 different balance sheets. And they all came to the same conclusion of the number, but, it, but there's a lot of creative accounting that's like how they get to that number. Sometimes they just delete a line. Sometimes they like there's that that came out in the testimony. Um, allegedly, that was Caroline Ellison's testimony. <laughs> um, <laughs> See, do with that me, what you will. I, but so so when they're going, people are like, how solvent are you? All this stuff. They're just like, here you go. And they have like a different balance sheet depending on what the needs yeah. met. And I'm like QuickBooks too. Yeah. Right? Like, like yeah. That, like. Well, and that was the thing. Uh, Ray the third, whatever his name is, the guy that like took over um, FTX in the aftermath of all this. He's just saying everything's on QuickBooks. You have a multi-billion dollar company, like a $30 billion company. Everything's on QuickBooks. <laughs> I mean, I guess I don't know what software corporations are supposed to use, but <laughs> that's what I use. So <laughs> and I, I believe say. this is the same guy that took over after like Enron. Is yeah. Yeah. He's right? like yeah. the, the guy that comes in and restructures companies yeah. and figures out how to. He said it was them. the worst case he'd ever seen Yeah, after insane. he did Enron. Right. Which is. <laughs> See Enron. I mean, I don't. I don't know a lot about Enron. I was, I was young, much younger when that happened. But this just seems insane. Like it there doesn't doesn't seem like this is something that well should be allowed to happen. Well, so this was the this was kind of the final nail in the coffin. Was a lot of the stuff was their own coin. They were putting up their own coin, FTT token, as like this 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 collateralized asset, and um and. Sam had actually sold 20% of the company to Binance, to CZ at Binance, which is his competitor, which is the biggest exchange in the world. And CZ started kind of getting a whiff of like, something's not right here. So he put out this tweet saying that we're going to be dumping all of our FTT tokens. And that was where everything happened because everybody's like, whoa, something's not right. And then so the FTT token starts dropping because everybody's selling it off because they're very concerned because we just had all these other contagions spreading throughout the industry. Mm -hmm. And then it ultimately came out where everything wasn't all right. And then they they shut down. Nobody can trade on the platform anymore. There was a hacker that was that was spreading malware to people with the app. Like it was like a whole thing. Money got lost and started. People were chasing it down the blockchain. <laughs> like it was a crazy like like forty eight hours. <laughs> so so when you say that you don't know why people don't just buy Bitcoin, it's because all of that. Yeah, shit. well, but that's yeah, well, well, the thing yeah, is, but ETFs are more safe. The thing right? is, <laughs> right? ETFs the thing could is, be worse than that, right? The, the like, thing is, there was no Bitcoin. Yeah, at least if I buy it and I put it on my own wallet, I have it on the chain, right? It's when you keep it on the exchange that's dangerous. Right. Right. And that's what allowed them to do it was the. There's a classic. We're not giving financial yeah. advice, but some crypto advice. Always put things on your own wallet. This has been true in crypto going back to 2008. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that if you buy off an exchange, you transfer it so that you control it. That is the entire virtue of it as opposed to digital money. The money in your bank account is no more secure than your money at FTX. It could be hacked by somebody else. But if you have it in your own wallet, it's a totally different story. And then second, you know, like this was illegal when he did it, to be clear. Like Mm -hmm. it wasn't like we discovered, oh, this is a new way to do illegal business. No, this has always been fraud. This is the most classic form of fraud ever, right? Which is a pyramid scheme functionally. His his actions were illegal. And it's the fact that we trust the authority to enforce it when they don't. Like no one's going around like investigating this stuff, right? This only happens when the market realizes, then they look back and then they discover and then the investigators come in to punish people after the fact, right? But for some reason you got this guy, Sam, who's not afraid of punishment, it seems like, just completely unaware that he's 
could spend life in prison. I don't, I can't explain uh, the guy. One of the attitude. interviews with him said, uh, I've never expected that I would have like the quiet, settled down with a family type of life. <laughs> well, he sure is right about that. Yeah. yeah. He, he said that to Tiffany Fong, who's been a, it's kind of a citizen journalist on all this. Um, wow. So the cypherpunks, I, I, I like the, the, the arc here. Cause we, we have like this great thing that, you know, Hey, because it's a blockchain, we can go back and we can hold Wall Street Journal accountable. But be careful about who you trust in crypto and all that question. And then the last one is like, you know, what is the, you know, what, how do we get out of this current situation? Inflation is just in a terrible situation right now. Huge problems happening in the West. Argentina has an election. And uh, one of their major candidates uh, who claims to be a libertarian is, is saying in order to solve the problem with inflation in Argentina, they're not going to go to the Bitcoin standard like uh, El Salvador, mm-hmm. right? They're going the go to go volcano coins in El Salvador. <laughs> yeah. Which we should talk about because a lot of people don't know about that, but um, we're going to go to a dollarization standard and he's gone from an unknown to now the second, you know, it, it they have like a, like the most thorough jungle primary I've ever seen where they go from like all parties to three to two. And he just passed the last barrier until the, you know, he's now in the general. He got election. second place and now he's running in the, in the, yeah. In the and, runoff and, and, until November. And the, the person in third, I believe, I believe this is what happened. Drop just dropped out and is endorsing him too. So now it's, it's one V one, I think. Yeah. And we'll yeah. see. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's now just the two in a jungle yeah. runoff. Yep. So, so uh, is his name guy? is Javier. Malay. Malay. I wanted you to try it. Yeah. I see. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I, went to, I, went to public school. I don't want to tell you. I can't. <laughs> Other languages. Yeah, so did I. Sir. What, what do you think? In do I Washington. look like a guy that went to private school? Is that what you're trying to yeah, say? Yeah, that's what you look like. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> Issaquah High School, class of 2008. So we got represent. a good uh, too long, didn't read uh, breakdown of that. What do we want? We could, we could actually see uh, who Javier is first. Uh, they have a nice breakdown from Fee. Uh, well, that too long didn't read. I am getting a DNS address <gasps> error. So we are what? not watching that one as apparently it has been taken down. Oh, no. Um, An Argentine economist and politician just might be the first libertarian president in modern history. Javier Malay won his presidential primaries, and that actually surprised a lot of people, mainly because he is a self-described libertarian anarcho-capitalist. There are other modern presidents who say libertarians are their influences. The president of South Korea says he's influenced by Milton Friedman, for example. But none of these presidents explicitly call themselves libertarians and certainly don't call themselves anarcho-capitalists. Malay would be very unique in this regard. But the reason him and libertarianism in general are becoming so popular in Argentina is probably because of their tough economic history. They used to be one of the 10 richest countries in the world, but in the 1940s, they went on a series of socialist reforms. Today, they face a lot of economic problems, with inflation being one of their biggest threats. Malay says he stands for defending the right to life, liberty, and property. He supports the institutions of liberalism, private property, labor mobility, the division of labor, social cooperation, and free markets with limited state intervention. He advocates for serving your fellow neighbor by offering goods and services. Liberalism in Argentina doesn't mean the same thing that it means in modern America. It means libertarianism. And according to the primary results, we see roughly a third of the country believes and sympathizes with these tenets. More than 40% of the people are living in poverty. They have rising crime and corruption. They are absolutely fed up with the current system and they want radical change. And Javier Malay is probably the best person to bring this change. A lot of the people certainly think so. So really quick, because, you know, 
we have a variety of different people that watch the show. What is an anarcho-capitalist and, and why is that not like just the unholy combination of anarchy and, you know, this evil corporate greed thing that people probably associate <laughs> yeah. in some cases yeah. with, with capitalism. What, what is an anarcho-capitalist? So um, imagine for a moment if you had to peel away, um, you know, an onion and you think of the modern conception of what the government should control as the onion and you peel away a little bit and you're like, Hey, the government shouldn't have a milk board, in Montana. We have a milk board in our government that sets the price of milk in the state of Montana. Seriously. Yeah. yeah you didn't know that. I did not know that. A lot of those boards. And so anyways, um, the public service commission, we need to regulate, you know, um, how many hospitals are in the state versus public monopolies. We keep peeling those away. An anarcho capitalist at some, at some point you're peeling away things like, that most people believe that there's a natural monopoly that the government should control because no one else could control it better or more uh, efficiently, right? Depending on your orientation. What's an example really quick of a natural monopoly? A natural monopoly is things like, uh, oh, the simplest one is you live in a small town and there's only one electrician. He's a natural monopoly. No one else can do electrician work because he's the only one with the certification. Now, anyone can wire a house. But only one person can do it with the site with the with with the licensure, right? So he only so, has a natural monopoly because he's the only one there, right? So that it. would that would be an unnatural monopoly in that sense. But then if you just say there's only one person that's trusted in town to do electrician work, then you have a natural monopoly. I see. That's the difference. I see. Right, one is done by government force through licensure. The other one's done by reputation. Oh, I see. So if this if if that town said there can only be one electrician, he would have an an, an artificial monopoly or right. an unnatural monopoly. But if he was just the only one that people really trusted, yeah, he would have a natural monopoly right. because or, he created the best product or service mm-hmm. and that people wanted to buy the most. Right. Or there's some material reason. Like a lot of people stipulate that yeah, power generation is probably a natural monopoly, right? Because not every neighborhood would want a coal-fired power plant powering it. Fair. So there's naturally one entity that's going to do that and then distribute the power to everybody. Right. Okay. Um, although layered power is now far more feasible, it probably never was a nat. It was probably a natural monopoly, but most natural monopolies are short term, mm-hmm. right? So the first entry to a market is often a natural monopolist as well. Sure. So the first time Facebook, the, yeah, or when, I guess well, MySpace, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but know. at some point, someone's offered a new product and no one else has gotten there yet. They're a natural monopoly for a time. Um, and that's and that's the case of most situations that people are worried about for monopoly is uh, this situation where there is technically the economics term is where you can increase prices without increasing competition. Does that make sense? Yeah. You have because, such a lock on the provision of a good or service that prices can go up and no one enters the market to compete with you. Gotcha. So, so, so how question, does that apply to anarcho-capitalism? So it basically says that the, that those natural monopolies don't, uh, one, don't necessarily, are, are a problem, right? It basically says that those, um, the, and the natural monopoly perhaps over force or judicial services or roads or power companies and things like that, they don't need to be. Those can also be subject to the market process. Now, the intuitive leap is this. Government sucks at everything. Why would it be good at things like roads and bridges and policing services? What if uh, insurance companies and other sorts of institutions could arise on a voluntary, mutually beneficial basis to provide the same amount of the same good or service? Would that be roads? Okay, you got a road is an easy roads is the most classic example, right? For libertarians and anarcho capitalists overwhelm, which is that you have a place and I have a place and we have an economic incentive to build a road, we would build the road and then we'd charge people to use it. 
right? So toll roads, basically. Right, right. And and there would be efficient ways to do that and inefficient ways. And there'd be charity roads and there'd be roads that anyone can drive on because it was built for charity and just to facilitate trade and commerce. And people would figure out a way to do that. In fact, for most of human history, that's how most roads are built. Now, they weren't the best roads. The best roads were the ones built by monopolies, like the Roman Empire. Those roads still exist because it was built by monopoly and built at huge largesse, right? Um, it was a works public program of the Roman Empire. So the, uh, but all the way up to the American Revolution, most roads built in the 13 colonies were not built by monopolies. They were built by private individuals who needed a road built. So they built one and then they didn't charge people to ride their horse on them. Although well, some toll roads did exist. Well, and, and the, the anarcho, the anarcho capitalist insight is essentially that these are all just forced monopolies. So things like social security is just like forced retirement accounts, um, roads, forced infrastructure, post postal service, forced monopoly on sending messages, right? Like is that there's this aspect of force there, which is the morality matrix of the, uh, of the anarcho capitalist capitalists is, not only is it inefficient, it is, but um, but there's a moral aspect of you're you're actually forcing this monopoly to actually exist, and rather than letting it naturally emerge, which is where you would have better price signals come in, with, which is just basic economics. So essentially, it's the idea that uh, government inherently is less efficient, and it is is requires the use of force. To but take it, resources. It's, it's also a religious mafia, like it's a mafia that is enforcing these monopolies to occur. And that's fundamentally immoral, right? Yeah. Like if you have anarcho, you can have anarcho-capitalism that's just based on efficiency argument. The best argument there is from David Friedman in his book, Machinery of Freedom. The best moral argument is probably Ethics of Liberty by, moral Roth, by, by Murray Rothbard, where he says natural law creates natural ethics and that natural ethics implies that the only just use of force is defensive and therefore there is no state that's morally um, legitimate. And, and worth oh. noting, David Friedman that you just mentioned there, that is Milton Friedman's son. Oh yeah. Um, so that is a very wonky book. I wouldn't recommend that for like, I would much, I I would recommend much more like Murray Rothbard's works. Um, it's a lot more digestible, I would say. Mm -hmm. It's much more the moral framework aspect of it. Easy one. There's anarchy of the state. Anatomy of the state state is like a little pamphlet basically. And it's, it's a very good, like here's the, here's the broad bones basics of what this is. And this is, yeah, that's basically like if I was going to recommend anyone start anywhere to actually understand the philosophy, it's anatomy of the state. Okay. So we just went kind of down the rabbit hole and just to bring it back up to, you know, summarize what anarcho-capitalism is in like basic core principles for people. What is anarcho-capitalism at a very broad strokes level? And then uh, how is, is Javier Millet's approach to um, Argentina and, and the issues that they face, how is that you know, uh, going to solve the problems that they've been facing. I'll do anarcho-capitalism. You do Argentina. Fair. Okay. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so anarcho-capitalism is the idea that you don't need a government to have the most moral and best outcome for most, for individuals. That's anarcho-capitalism. And you don't need collectivism in that. It's an individualist approach to anarchism as opposed to the traditional forms of anarchism that all had a lot of religious collectivist thought at at least you don't need this massive centralized state apparatus like it doesn't mean that there's not going to be governance that exists it doesn't mean that there's not going to be rules like this is where people kind of get very confused about it is like 
at the center of anarcho-capitalism, it essentially means like rules without rulers. Because like most of our problems here are that we're very concerned about like the bureaucratic apparatus and the intelligence apparatus and these like centralized figures that we all have to like pray to basically. <laughs> like that's kind of the, that's the critique here is that civilized society doesn't necessarily exist because like Joe Biden is president, right? Like, like there's a much bigger aspects of like, cultural phenomenon and, and, uh, and, uh, kind of like local phenomenon of like actually knowing the people that kind of represent you and like communities coming together and kind of establishing social norms and stuff like that. Like a lot of that is where anarcho-capitalism lies of, of like, we aren't moral and we're, we're not killing each other because Joe Biden says we can't. And, and he's like written a law about it. Like that's not how morality works actually. So what is the current situation in Argentina economically, socially, and then how is Javier Malay's perspective going to affect that for the better? Well, this is kind of, so I just pulled up a chart here and it's just a 10, it's just a simple 10 year chart of this is the Argentine peso to the US dollar. Um, and if you look at it, it is uh, quite a, abysmal. Um, in the last 10 years, the Argentine peso has gone down 98.32%. Um, so I think you can understand why people in Argentina are very um, looking for some sort of drastic change, because I don't think there's any any amount of incrementalism that's going to get you out of this. <laughs> right. No. Um, so, so, so what does that mean? Right. That means if something was denominated a dollar, right, a candy bar and a dollar right now or 10 years ago, what would it be? What would it cost in dollar terms? Mm -hmm. Argentina. No. It's basically what's happening is you're going down like on a yearly basis, you're becoming 99% poorer. So if, if a candy That's, bar costs a dollar 10 years ago, it costs almost a hundred dollars now. Is that right? Uh, $10 now. $10. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. It, it's a Wouldn't lot. It's a lot. Th this math. It's hard. Yeah, right. It's oh. on the spot. I'm a philosopher. <laughs> what? No, you're right. You have a hundred dollars now. hundred. I was going to yeah. say, if yeah, it's gone down right. 98%, you're talking right, about right, $98. Right. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm so, no mathematician. So the, the cost of it, and this was actually like, but that's actually, the point is I, that there's, there's an inflationary problem and that there's a problem with the, of course the dollar, right? It has its own inflationary problems. We're experiencing that, but they have one that's far greater than ours. Does and far faster. Yeah. I mean, that's 10 years. I would say, I think the same chart applies to the U S dollar in about the last hundred years. years yeah. Right? right. Yeah. We're down about 98% in like a hundred years basically. Yeah. Um, but well, and I actually recommend people, um, like a month ago, month month or two ago tucker carlson did two episodes one was him just kind of like going around talking to people in argentina and the other was talking to javier malay but when he was just going around talking to people like tucker went into this like back room black like black market money exchange <laughs> that was like offering kind of like cheaper money than everybody else <laughs> like like everybody's like faces were covered it was like a whole thing like i recommend uh um just kind of like getting the vibe of of what it's actually like there and understanding like like there's kind of the saying, like we just came off a segment talking about crypto. There, there's a very common um, adage in the crypto space is fix the money, fix the problems, like fix the money, fix the world or Bitcoin fixes everything. Like Bitcoin doesn't actually fix everything, but there is like understanding a lot of the problems that exist in our culture right now. A lot of the problems that we're seeing is because we just have like very bad economics and monetary policy. And it's causing a lot of additional strife. People are scapegoating everywhere. People are um, like freaking out um, in, in like, like on a large sociological scale right now. And a lot of it is just because we don't have like 
good money <laughs> and it's causing a, like a lot of people are you know you have like the 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 rich and the poor gap is increasing and like because a lot a lot of these decisions that are being made in america what it, what ends up happening what happens with covid all the money just ends up getting funneled into like the top one percent right and so like the left wing kind of perspective there there is some truth to what they're saying of like being concerned about the wage gap and all this stuff right like like but i don't think oftentimes they get to the crux of it is like we have a bad problem our money doesn't work. Our money is leaking. It's like we're on a sinking ship right now. And like, we're just like loosely, sometimes we try to like put some tape on the hole, but not really. But like the, the gap is widening and widening. We don't have like thermodynamically sound money right now. Right. Are you quoting Michael Saylor? That was a Michael Saylor oh, quote. God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go throw up. I'll be right back. <laughs> but I, I think he makes very useful points about like understanding money in that regard of like, like I, I've never actually the thermodynamic nature of money and like you want to have the most like conservation of energy of your money thing i think is like a very real like physical like it's like bringing physics into economics of like that is the problem right there is our money is leaking well we right? don't want money that loses its value and currently that's that's what they're facing in argentina that's what we're facing here on a, on a lesser scale but in argentina it's a very acute problem and so really javier millet is, is offering something that's just a vast departure from the experience that they have been living under right which arguably should affect their their social experience i mean what would your take on that be david oh i mean the if you if inflation was going up 100 percent a year why would you save your dollars like what's the point you would spend every dollar you could as fast as you got it mm-hmm. so what that changes your 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 incentives as a culture become consumeristic and lack savings and get what you can now into physical hard assets as soon as you can, that creates a set of perverse incentives for people to behave differently. So, you know, the right now is a strange moment for me because of the first time in my life in America, interest rates are so high that people are like, wow, you could put money in and get 5% return. Mm -hmm. Now, if the economy was growing throughout my entire lifetime and we had a natural market rate, that would be probably close to the norm right? It would make sense to put money in so that money would then accrue value as it was invested and return on investments. Or as the economy grew, the value of the dollar would increase because that would mean each, I could now buy more things with it. Uh, but because of our fiat banking system and the monetary policy decisions going all the way back to 1913, when we decided to create the Fed, we've created a system that create, has exactly the opposite incentives, which is things like financialization. Everything should be financialized, not savings based, not 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 growth by production by increasing the production capacity of America, but rather by offering more more more, more financial services and opportunities to invest. That's the only way to save for the future, right? Is by buying into into companies and capital investment. That doesn't necessarily have to be how it is. That it before the Fed, that was one way to use your money. The other way was that Next year, your dollar could go further, so you saved it. Mm, yeah. Does that make sense? Yep. So the uh, over-financialization of everything will also changes the structure of everything. You don't get BlackRock without the Fed, mm-hmm. right? That's the sense in which BlackRock is a creation of our over-financialization because everyone has to put into a large financial firm in order to save for the future. We wouldn't necessarily have the same kind of enormous crazy size of capital if your dollar was improving in its value and ability to command goods and services every year because it has was tied to a commodity such as a gold standard or something like that we had before um, the fiat system so 
I don't want to go too far down the, the economics rabbit hole here, but I do want to clarify a couple of things because I think there's some common questions around this. Like the idea of deflation has a very negative connotation in the media. And, and the idea that your dollar gains value every year means that prices of goods go down relative to the value of the purchasing power of that dollar. That's deflation. So why is that not a bad thing? I mean, it's, why is it not a, well, whoa, whoa. Why is it not a bad thing? Why is, why? So deflation, deflation <laughs> is, I don't is even know what that sentence means. <laughs> why is it not? Why is mean? deflation not bad? Why is deflation oh, okay. why not is this deflation? boogeyman? Oh, well, because what that means is that, okay, so when your TV, when, you remember when big screen TVs were super expensive? Yeah. And then, and like buying a 60 inch big screen plasma TV was four grand. Yep. Now it's 600 bucks. Is that a good thing for poor people? I mean, it seems like most households, regardless of, of socioeconomic status, have a large flat screen TV. So yeah. arguably good. Yeah. Well, ar- well, I mean, I not mean... Dependent upon your, your, <laughs> your views of what goes through that. I'm not saying you judge people's uh, commercial habits. I'm just saying if you can't access something and now you can, and it's now an option for you according to your values, that's a good thing, right? Sure. That happened for almost all goods and services before the creation of the Fed. Almost all goods and services had that feature where it would get introduced to society, it'd be relatively expensive, and then as time went by, you would build your production capability to make mass amounts of it, so it would decrease the price over time until everyone could buy it, then you would make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not how you really do things now, right? Right now, you take an enormous loan. It's the only way to start something of substance. Of substance. And that's partially because a lot of the low, low-hanging fruits picked, but it's also because we've created the incentive to do so, right? Interest rates being low means money's always cheap, right? So over-leveraging is going to happen more often, and that creates the boom-bust cycle. Well, it creates short-term thinking. All right. And then additionally, the, the, um, if the most things went down in price over time, that gives you an incentive to save. And once you have the incentive saved, then you're no longer when an economic bust happens, if a regional one happens or in your particular industry, one happens, you have a savings that means something to you, right? You put a dollar in now, and then when the economic economy busts 10 years from now, that dollar is still worth a dollar, if not more. That's a good thing. Yeah. So what we're looking at in the United States, when when gas is expensive, when groceries have uh, you know, inflated in value substantially. Basically doubled. <laughs> right. Argentinians are looking at probably tenfold. Right. Okay. And and so Javier Millet is offering them a way out of that, a vision for a way to change that reality that they've just been living under. Not to a perfect solution, but to the dollar solution, which would be a lot easier translation because all of the financial instruments that are done in internationally are dollars. So it gives them a great opportunity to integrate with the global economy, gives them a great opportunity to integrate with, you know, American systems for finance and therefore get access to a more stable currency. Um, but it's still, it's kind of jumping out of one ship into another ship that's also on fire. But it's a lot better. But yeah. it's less on fire. Yeah. Right. Like, like that's, that's always been my thought process around kind of like the game of all of this is that we're going to be moving into a very dollarized, like a much more dollarized world. Actually, it's probably going to be like a few elements. A lot of these currencies are just, they're going to collapse into the dollar. And this is, this is going to be one of the major ones right here. So, um, but another life raft that's building up is bricks. And we've talked about bricks a lot, but uh, I think that we're going to end up saying it'll be like bricks, Euro dollar. And then there'll be kind of like this obscure crypto industry that is kind of the, 
these not geographically located networks, basically. Like it's going to be something like that is where I think that the world is moving to right now. Well, interesting to note that uh, some of the BRICS nations, China in particular, Russia also have been amassing huge, huge sums of gold as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, they're backing their currency with gold. Right. Yeah. And they're and they're talking about right backing the, you know, a future BRICS currency with gold. So thinking about ways to create sound money to create prosperity, that's obviously kind of the exact opposite of where we are in the United States and in the West, the broader West. We're very much still dependent upon debt. We have to continue inflating uh, in order to monetize the debt because we're getting to the point where we can't pay it. So we're going to have to inflate it away. But that is going to have even worse consequences if, if something's not done. And it might even be too late. I'm not really even sure. Uh, I guess we'll see. And most likely, it's probably a monetary reset, right? It's to, it's to move to a different dollar or a different dollar standard or something like that. Um, and then, and the, the, the other options, of course, for Argentina are go to a gold standard. Right, if they have the reserves to back it. Now, you, what you need is something that actually transitions you back to that thing. Well, and the second um, sort of common question, and, and this might not be something that most people ask, but there, I've heard it said that uh, if you're on a gold standard, there, there's not enough money in the system to keep things going. Is that a fallacy? It, is could, that be true? A, it could be a problem at a, at a given rate, right? So you need enough gold in order to, in order to, do the thing you're trying to do, which is send a signal of value in an exchange, right? And if you just don't have enough of it, that's a problem, right? That's why you have gold silver standards, gold silver copper. Um, not a problem with things like Bitcoin because it can just divide itself into smaller and smaller parts, right? Sure. Up to, I don't know, a one one millionth of a part yeah, or something like that? Yeah, one Satoshi is one one hundredth millionth. Yeah. Okay. So that that that's the advantage of a digital currency, right? Is that you can break it down smaller or you can inflate it at a certain rate or like, like, like Bitcoin. And it just, it just reduces the amount of variables that you have when it comes to those problems. And it introduces other problems, right? Such as people's ability to use it. El Salvador introduced a Bitcoin standard, basically saying that, you know, we're going to alongside of our currency, introduce everyone. Alongside the dollar, they're dollarized. Yeah. Yeah. Alongside the dollar, we're going to introduce Bitcoin so that you can do requiring all merchants to do both dollar transactions and Bitcoin transactions. And like now, you know, as of, I got a study from MBER that, you know, the um, most people knew about the wallet, but only about 70%. Right. And then, you know, tried to use the wallet 50%, able to use the wallet 46%. Use the wallet after getting the subsidy in the initial wallet because they like gave everyone wallets and then they gave them a thirty dollars subsidy. Mm-hmm. But then after that, the only people you really used it afterwards about ten percent of the population. Because it just makes just easier to deal in dollars. Yeah, right? and probably mostly expats who move there to use Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, no, there's like a place called Bitcoin Beach where yeah. that's <laughs> yeah. But like it's it's just one of those things that you have incentive structures built in to continue with the easiest currency, the thing that people understand and trust the most. Dollar has a brand that is trusting. We don't think it's very trustworthy on this podcast, right? Like it has huge problems. Well, it's, it's more but, trustworthy than all these other options, right. right? Like that's that's the thing that people have to understand. Is it a sinking ship? Yes. Is it is it more sinking than everything else? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It's the cleanest shirt in the hampers. Yeah. They say. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But if you're if you're if you've been using and saving in Bitcoin in El Salvador all the way through this, you know. Bitcoin winter, you're probably in a really great spot, right? Bitcoin's up 120% this year. Yeah. Right. Right. Now, if you 
got in at a different time, it'd be at a different time. Yeah, if you got in at $60,000, then you're down 50 <laughs> right. right now, right? So it's like, just one of those things. Like that's that's why most people recommend not huge purchases of these sorts of things, small purchases over time. Well, don't don't buy in the amount. FOMO. Like yeah. that's, that's everybody... Everybody thinks that they're going to beat the market, but they're the ones jumping in when everybody's jumping in and like, no, you're going to fail the market. Like when you, if you were going to get into it, you should have gotten into it. The best time would have been when all the scammers went to jail, when it was at $16,000, right? Um, that being said, I, I'm a, I'm a Bitcoin bull. I'm very positive on it as, as a, in its future. Um, like I think it's going to go much higher than this. Is it in the short term? Yeah. I don't know. Who knows where it's going to right. go in the short term. And there's just right. the vision from there. And we are running out of time, but the vision from there is the question is like, what's the purpose of Bitcoin? Is it to compete with the dollars? Is it to compete with banks? I think or it competes is with it, gold. <laughs> and it's, a, it's, a, it's an asset. It's like a hard asset that you use to try to maintain value. Over I think time. that's a false narrative, but we can get into that topic <laughs> another time. <laughs> all right. The Bitcoin, the great Bitcoin debate coming up soon. Um, all right. And it, then all, all my assets are in Penguins, Dave. That's yeah. All <laughs> Yeah, I still got a lot of ADA. It's doing well right now. I'm happy about that. Nah. To reiterate, <laughs> to reiterate, not financial advice. No. and no, uh, Definitely don't follow my financial advice. Do it's your own research. So we got one more thing to leave everybody with that I, we didn't have up front. I feel, we I, feel gotta, like, I feel like we should end there. No, no, no. <laughs> we got we to gotta see Greta Thunberg pitching the vegan wars. Oh, my God. I love this. Yes, for sure. Okay. Not all, not all new technology is good. Some of us gives us these digital nightmares, these no. terrible, horrible things that should never not, exist. Not, not all new technology is good. Some of it's great. <laughs> Some of it is great, huh? War is always bad, specifically for the planet. If we want to continue uh, fighting battles like environmentally conscious humans, we must make the change to sustainable tanks and weaponry. There are so many new concepts for our battery-powered fighter jets that can carry many more... Um, Missiles, biodegradable missiles, of course. Something literally everybody can do to stop this nonsense is, for example, block the roads to gardens and farms so the plants don't get overrun by these heavy, heavy tanks. Hand grenades, very important. If you use hand grenades, please use vegan grenades. No animal should have to give their life for all this mayhem and chaos. They have a special sticker on them. You really can't miss them in the... Uh, grenade market or wherever you buy them yeah i cover all of this and more in my newest book vegan wars yeah wow so that's fake yeah but look at the community <laughs> that's what i like about it. the video has been digitally altered greta's mouth and her voice were uh deep faked yeah mm -hmm. you can and you can see it on the bottom right hand corner but it's easy to miss because you see the bbc like graphic in the top left it's uh, a good example of why you should be skeptical of things you see on the internet yeah yeah, yeah. I mean that, and you know, I mean, obviously, what she's saying is absolute bonkers. But it's also crazy how many people <laughs> yeah, would be like, "I could that see." That seems it. like something she would say. It, you know, it does seem like something she would say. It's, it's a, that's what makes it such a great commentary about the moment. You're kind of like, I believe it. <laughs> I, I believe it. This is uh, this is the definition of cloud world. I think right what? when you can't distinguish fake from true because well it. That sounds like something she would say. What's even worse is that for a long time, we wouldn't even be able to know, right? Like if Walter Cronkite was a freaking commie, but no one knew, right? Because we didn't have any kind of piercing 
assessment of our own media. No, Dave, when that's, that's when the media was at its best. Yeah. That's what everyone tells me. Right. When Walter Cronkite was giving us the truth, <laughs> conservatives tell me that. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, it was a simpler time, that's for sure. Yeah, when, when you had a, I mean, we talk about the modern narrative. There's really a modern narrative then, right? Of a single narrative that was Project Mockingbird, approved by the CIA, that sort of thing. And then we, we have the chaos of the current moment, which has its downsides, such as people who might think that Greta actually said that, right? real problem or that think that joe rogan's trying to give them bitcoin or something like that you know you've seen these i assume uh of deep fakes of people who are popular internet figures you've been like oh just send me your bitcoin address send me one bitcoin and i'll send you two back yeah Mm -hmm. right that those sort of scams it it's really harsh out there if you're dumb don't be dumb right dumb yeah (laughs) that said next episode we're going to do a full deep fake of all of our faces and voices (laughs) And we're going to completely have ChatGPT make up the entire script for the if, show. If we can automate the show, that would be great. I would love that. How do you know we haven't already? Every step but Jake. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that, we're going to give Jake a break and not make him edit a three-hour podcast. We appreciate you for watching. Join the Discord if you want to be a part of the stories that we talk about next week. And uh, we appreciate you. We'll see you in the next one. Thanks for tuning in to Human Reaction. Help us fight internet censorship by liking, commenting, subscribing, following, and sharing the show with your friends. To find us around the internet, visit linktree.com slash humanreactionpod. And remember, it's really harsh out there if you're dumb. Don't be dumb.